It's last day of the month, so it's time for our marvelous demystifiers super group. These guys are the ultimate in decoding the comics and the comic movies. I'm gonna have so much fun with this one. Oh man. And I already see a lot of good stuff going on in the chat. I gotta say hey to everyone on the Rockfin side. What's up, Neil? Neil says he found us through the episode I did with Howdy. So I'm sure Neil's gonna love this because we're getting into all this Egypt gravy. Very inspired by Howdy. I've got his book right here, Howdy McCoskey. The Power of Then, Revealing Egypt's Lost Wisdom. Also, I see Sam Clint and Kaylee in the Rockfin chat. And Logan Cook tipped me $5 before we even said anything cool. That's awesome. He says, can't wait to do a session with the Big Fork. It's <laughs> <laughs> Big Fork. Yeah, yeah. dude. Yeah, buddy. Can you do it? You want me to hit it? Yeah, man. Okay, yeah, man. Uh, I will. 
<laughs> Here we go. That's the, uh, the G. Nice. I would let it ring out, but that would take like three more minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we just say, yeah, so, a, a ring of the moon. There's a lot of people to say hi to on the YouTube side, too. Papa Lee, O'Clarts, Chelsea. I see Joshua flat out fencing. Probably missed some more. Crazy Fox 77, Cutie Pie. Someone named Gordy Two Shoes is in that chat too. What? Who that? What's up, everybody? Howdy, gang. Yeah, so uh, this is the G unit. I mean, we got Gabriel, Gordy, and my last name starts with a G. Garton. Who is that Garton? Triple G. Sassy. Triple seven. All right, fellas. What are we talking about? Well, why don't you guys tell me? Well, how long has it been? We've we've been sitting on this for a little while because we kind of wanted to let some things kind of fall out as we kind of process this because there's a lot of juice in Moon Knight. So we're going to tear down Moon Knight tonight. First two episodes, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. I so, originally advertised this as the first three episodes, but yo... I mean, I'll be real. I didn't have time to analyze the third episode and kind of playing catch up since taking a few weeks of holiday time. And honestly, I got as much to talk about in the first two episodes to equal one of the other movies that we've covered. So I think this is the safe way to do it, which means if you guys are up for it and if we can swing it with our schedules, this is a big month for Marvelous Demystifiers because we're possibly going to shoot to do three episodes to cover all of Moon Knight in the one month. I don't know if you guys are up for it, but it would be cool. I'm, I'm so down. The alchemical triplicity, let's do it. Yeah, and the, the six episodes really do divide into kind of Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 that way in terms of setting. Right. And, you know, it's alchemically appropriate we're doing uh, episodes 1 and 2 because that's the Jackim and the Boaz. Oh, I've got some screenshots with pillars. Those are the metrics of the Matrix that prove that the meter that we use in America is the meter they use in Egypt is the metrics that make America part of Egypt, that tie us together. So one, two, one, two, here we go. One, two, one, two, check, check. (laughs) Check, check. Well, why don't you guys hit us with some opening thoughts? You know, maybe I'll let you guys give us the overview of what you think thematically is most important to have already on our minds as we progress forward into, you know, kind of the traditional as it's become shot by shot analysis, moving us through the plot. I think we can do that again. I've got screenshots in a good order. Before we, we go into to the actual uh, thing. Um, so when I was introduced to Moon Knight, I was a kid in the 70s. I had a bunch of uh, <clears throat> Silver Age uh Marvel comics that were kind of leftovers, especially all like the, the ones nobody cared about. I had a ton of those and Moon Knight was one of those. Like it, it wasn't a hit uh, when I was a kid. It was like a really super duper side character um, that I thought was kind of cool. Like it was um, the, 
this guy being possessed by a god, uh, ancient god, or having the powers of an ancient god, um, where they kind of, like, originally they kind of um, changed his powers. Originally it was kind of like, you know how Hawkman has, like, his ancient um, Egyptian deity help? Like, it was like a helper kind of thing, kind of like Shazam has the, the pantheon where they help him, but he's not possessed by them. In this, he is full-on possessed by uh, Kanchi, the god. And this series is based on the um, the book called uh, Lunatic. It's Moon Knight Lunatic, and I think it's a, it's a series that was put into a trade. Um, and that's how I found out about it's this a trade story. paperback for those who aren't into the comics lingo. It's when right. they compile Nerd a bunch trade. of issues into a, a larger book. <laughs> so um, thank you for keeping us on task for, for the normies. Yeah, um, not everybody <laughs> has spent hundreds of dollars on comic books like us. <laughs> right. So um, anyway, yeah, my, my son-in-law introduced me to this and in the and I, ha- I haven't uh, read it in several years, but it, I remember it being the first time I saw a hero going into a mental asylum, um, being, being from the uh, protagonist. Pro- oh, what? God, why can't I say that word? Protagonist's point of view, right? Yeah. And um, so I thought that was really uh, a really interesting putting, you know, dealing with somebody's mental illness, which let's be honest, if you had these kind of powers, you, you'd probably have to deal with some shit mentally and it would probably fuck you up any, at any rate. And there's a couple of times in here that, uh, so at any rate, that's, that's how I was introduced to, to Moon Knight and loved it ever since. Um, and so going in, like we've, we've all seen all of them, right? We're not, we're spoiling it for ourselves. So, um, like I dig this series, man. This was the first time, uh, my wife and I have like gotten into a show in a long time together. Like, and I, I kind of dig this. There's a lot to hate about it, but a lot to love about it too. I really like, if you haven't watched it, we'll, I'll be, you know, helping you to attain watchdom if you're in the telegram group, but uh, yeah. that's code for, we've got the video files. And if you ask on telegram, we can forward it to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Gabe, what, or uh, Gordy, what you're saying is so true. I mean, there's, I guess there is a lot to love about it on a viewer side. Like, you know, there's horrific programming and crazy misconceptions being thrown about, Egypt <laughs> that are not good. Crazy, crazy stuff. Probably. I don't want to be all mooncat about it, but it, I think that the, uh, the harm outweighs any good in this because the good is on the entertainment value side and the harm is on the psychological damage to humanity side. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, I found myself like when it, I found myself watching it every Wednesday as it came out one episode a week and interesting too, that it initiated in the sign of Aries and concluded in the sign of Taurus and the sign of Taurus side of this and the mother thing, man. I mean, we know Disney just pummels the mom 
and just annihilates mom and tries to create evil mom <laughs> everywhere it can. And yeah, that'll be the next thing on the chopping block probably is uh, Doctor Strange and the, the mom of madness. The decent no mom. Yeah, the decent mom in Gabe's video. I watched that today. Yeah, decent mom. So the, uh, uh, the acronym there is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which is got mom in it, and it came out in Taurus, right around Mother's Day. Yeah, this one. Yes, that train wreck. Oh, I mean, symbology. I just remember in Gabriel's video before he went to the movies to see it, he's like, "I have a feeling they're really going to fuck with Wanda on this one." <laughs> I did not, you had no idea. <laughs> Yeah, sidetrack though. It's something to look forward to, guys. If you can, sometime in the next month, watch the uh, new Doctor Strange. We'll be covering that next, most likely, and because there will be a lot to say about it. But yeah. Gabriel, uh, maybe yeah. you can kind of round us out on on this and describe the Tavistockian social engineering MK mm-hmm. Ultra themes that are going to be coming up, and any other opening thoughts you want to shoot across the bow here. Yes. So I have some uh, some really. Fun terms I want to kind of add to everybody's uh, vernacular around um, uh, what we're going to get into, particularly on this one, because this is just setting it up perfect. Um, There's a term I've come to appreciate that's a German term. It's uh, den Kronverlust, and that means uh, loss of thinking space. And it is used in the artistic world to uh, describe confusing the object for the subject and uh, making the, like, you know, an artist makes an amazing piece of art and we don't care about the person who got the picture drawn of them. The art becomes more valuable than the subject itself. And there's this weird transference that goes in uh, and it's called der, den Kronverlust. And it, and it also has to do with people identifying themselves with their driver's license with their state-issued identification, this second persona mm-hmm. that everybody's expected to take care of, like a little baby, like a little homunculus living in your wallet all the time that you have to feed and honor and respect and venerate like a baby Christ. Uh, just a thing to think about. Uh, it's also a term I've looked up in, you got to read hard and kind of get between the lines, but enclosed cognition is a field of study that's come up recently. And it has a lot to do with like, when we see doctors dressed up as a doctor, we get a certain psychological archetypal response that is very, uh, not just Freudian, but Jungian as well. And how those are hypocrites, which means actors, which means politicians. So our politicians and our doctors are all taking these Hippocratic oaths. Wink, wink, hush, hush. You know what I mean? So uh, that's a term that's uh, definitely going to be a theme, closed cognition. Uh, and then uh, freedom of association and how psychologically uh, we, we associate with these actors on the stage and then they go through these trauma experiences. And it, uh, whether we know it or not, on the subconscious level, uh, it's happening to ourselves. We are agreeing when we go into the theater to be like, I'm going to associate with this person who's going to go through this adventure and uh, the effects that that has on us because the dissociative identity disorder spell is, uh, is all over this, this series here. It's all over Disney. Like lately it is so big, (laughs) not just Disney, Hollywood in general, multiverse and dissociative identity disorder feels like 
every month we come back and talk about these things. And the, you know, huge symbolic link between Dr. Strange last month's analysis and this one is the mirror world. Except now it's like instead of them in Dr. Strange, they go to the mirror world as like an alternate dimension. So the setting that they're in is they are inside the mirror, so to speak. But in this, it's the mirror world inside of you, which is this artificial person, this artificial, you know, this fictional identity. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the straw man stuff is all over this. We're going to uh, bust it out as soon as we see the opening scene. So maybe we should get into that. The opening scene has got probably in two and a half minutes enough for us to talk for 20. So we'll do our best. But <laughs> that was a funky sound. Okay, so let me pull up a screen share for you guys. How does this sound? We'll, um, I'll go through probably like three screenshots here, and then we'll talk about, and I'll narrate what is happening, and then we'll talk about it all. I'll bring the shots back up as we go. Yeah, so the very first thing we see is this dude's hands. We don't know who the dude is yet. We have got the scales on the right arm here. The scales have got the crocodile head. Very important. We're going to see this symbol all the time. And we have the walking stick or the cane. And we have the sandals or the shoe. We have the glass and a larger chalice here. So this guy, he, uh, we see his hands as he pours water into his glass. And then he uses his fingers to make the glass like whistle sort of give it a, a humming glass magical thing that he's doing, maybe enchanting the water with some kind of intention. Then he breaks, he covers it with cloth and he breaks the glass with a hammer after he drinks the liquid out of it. And then he takes the broken glass and puts it in his sandals and he puts the sandals on and walks out. I should have got a screenshot where you see him prominently leaning on the walking stick, but all the symbols in these opening screenshots are highly important and relevant to the whole show and all the plot. So um, I'll let you guys take a shot first and then I'll see if I can fill in the gaps with some of the things that I recognized in this whole dynamic here. So I see uh, uh, the Magi card with the table and all the ingredients and all the implements that he needs uh, laid out before him, very Magi card. Um, and all of this is like a, um, if we were doing a conspiracy cork board, <laughs> this scene would be the center place. And uh, correspond- Yeah, they love that uh, initiation moment. That's the most important thing of the yes. whole, the whole ritual is the, the most important thing is the very opening moment, if you will, the birth. Yes. yes. And there will be threads of correspondence that all center, like as though we were a spider weaving a web, literally. And this is like the uh, center ring uh, because those are Crocs. Those shoes are Crocs. This is like a. You mean gators? <laughs> gators. gators. It's another word for shoe. Is That's gator. it. That's for a it. Shoe. I think shoes like that are called gators, right? Yes. So this is going to be like hand in glove metaphor layers within layers within layers going forward from this centric ring. 
Um, so uh, that's very powerful. And the fact that Shu, we've learned uh, an Egyptological uh, value for the word Shu that's very powerful now. It's going to inform our perspective uh, big time. What do you got, Gordy? Oh, I was just thinking that uh, the initially, like, like the focus on the, the bonds, his, his bracelets, those are, aren't those ser- service bonds? Like you're in service to somebody. Bingo. Exactly. Like slavery. Slavery. Bingo. bingo. And they're not even, they're not even. Mm-hmm. One is hiked up a little, one is down a little, kind of two pillar-ish. Yeah. There's more of a gap in one and then the other. Mm-hmm. It looks like they were actually handcuffs or shackles that got broken, but he's still wearing them. Definitely the bondage. Yeah. He's a slave to the goddess. We'll talk more about which goddess as we go. Mm-hmm. The, t- the tough thing about this is to put all our thoughts in order. Cause like you said, this scene is the center of the conspiracy cork board. <laughs> so <laughs> like just to discuss all the symbols in this scene, we'll have to jump ahead and talk about some elements of the show that are coming up, but I'm cool with that. So, all right, we got the Libra tattoo. So Libra is the point in the sky clock where the sun, um, you could call it like the, uh, the gate of winter, if you will. Because it's going into the fall from there, right? Right. But that was where the moon was at when the movie came out also. Oh, nice. Yes. Nice. So it's, it's the 180, 180 moon card, 18. Yep, which means it was probably the full moon in Libra that happened, right? You got the full it. Moon in, full moon in Libra is in Aries when this came out. If it was a full moon, then it would have had to have been a Libra full moon. So. Yep, so here's our adversary. This is the adversary. Oh, man. Is the Libra. Adverse Aries. (laughs) Yeah. Very good, yeah. So One more thing that came in uh, with my show, and this was just in the middle of me recording on Slick Distant Channel, but I was thinking of Rage Against the Machine. Remember that part in in my little video? I'm like, oh, yeah, this is R-A-M. The Ram is Aries, and it's against... The only machine in the Zodiac is the Libra scales. Nice. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so the hands are important. I mean, like I look at a lot of things as I analyze through the lens of the biofield. I can't help it. And so we know that the hands are like a microcosm of the whole body and also reflect the feet, the feet that the shoe goes on. So, Okay, let me see. What do I want to talk about first? <laughs> the uh, All right, let's start with the cane. This is really, really interesting. I, I was like, okay, we know that hieroglyphics are a thing, and we have what we accept as the meaning of hieroglyphics from mainstream Egyptology, although per, probably it's just one layer of the meaning of the hieroglyph. And as Howdy talks about in his book, they have, they're hugely holographic in terms of a language. The hieroglyph is a sound or a set of sounds, often like multiple consonants represented by one hieroglyph, but you don't know the vowels that go between them. So all the words that we have from Egypt that have vowels in them, the vowels are just assumed and put there. We don't really know if that was actually the intonation. So that's part of like, you know, the hidden one, God, (laughs) Amen-Ra, Amen, the hidden God. So, (laughs) so, you know, because the vowels, all the vowel sounds would constitute the om om um all these sounds are like 
if you got them in the right order, that might be the last name, if you will, the, the last word, the hidden name, the unpronounceable. So we have this walking stick or cane. <laughs> uh, do we know who cane is in the Bible? Speaking of machines, who was the builder of the first machines, if you will? He was a smith, a will smith, smither of wills. That's Cain from the Bible. So we have the biblical Cain that phonetically ties to a walking stick. But in Egyptian hieroglyphs, a walking stick is a hieroglyph. And it's traditionally, according to Egyptologists, put in front of a speech or a a large segment of text or story. So showing us the walking stick in the very first initiation scene is symbolic on the face of it of the beginning of a story which I thought was kind of interesting that may not have even been intentional because it seems like the character was going to have a walking stick for other reasons, but okay. So let's talk about too the, and I'm really fascinated by the whistling of the, the cup. I don't know if I have a lot to say about that other than it's kind of, it's a cool touch <laughs> walking on the glass though is super brutal. So you have flagellation going on, which is a religious term for when you like, inflict pain and suffering on yourself as a sign of deference to your deity or your Lord or your master, you know, like whipping yourself on the back with the cat of nine tails. Interestingly, there is a hieroglyph. When I was looking up the walking stick hieroglyph, there's a variation of the walking stick hieroglyph that has a flagellum on the stick. So it's a walking stick that you also flagellate yourself with, which is crazy. Because that's what he's doing when he walks on the glass. Yes, that is super, super creepy. Uh, it makes me think of Opus Dei right away, which o- Opus Dei is a phonetic anagram for octopus. And the flagellum looks like an octopus or a squid that they're, in, that they're hitting themselves with. The fact that it's a cat of nine tails makes me think of the Enneagram right away. And the fact that he ran his finger on the rim of the cup to bring a tone forward was definitely uh, kind of indicating that musical value of the Enneagram uh, in my eyes. What do you think, Gordy? Because the Enneagram contains the code for the devil's tone, which is a a discordant measure that can be used to uh, scare off crowds and crowd control, that kind of thing. Gordy, you're muted. Sorry, I just said the wisest thing ever. And I was muted and it'll never happen. You're having some internet glitchiness there, brother. Keep freezing up on us. I want to hear your thoughts, but we'll have to wait till you're unfrozen. In the meantime, I want to refer to Crazy Fox's comment here. Did we mention the importance of the crocodile from the crocs and its relevance to ancient Egypt? So, yeah, to reference the importance of the crocs, the crocodile is definitely a massive part of this whole weave because the uh, this character with the bondage bracelets is in service to Amit is the name of the uh, the goddess who's a crocodile headed goddess. And we will say more about that as we go. But, you know. You guys in the chat, if you got things to add to the weave or there's something you're aware of in terms of like this question, the importance of crocodile to ancient Egypt, throw it in there. You know, it might really add to the flavor of this. I'll try to catch those if I can. 
Gordy, it looks like you're unfrozen now. Music, we we're going to riff on it. Oh, yeah. Set the tone. And to control people, the, the um, certain tones can, can control human behavior. And, you know, I mean, that's what, uh, that's what all spiritual traditions and dances and, and, um, you know, campfire songs are made for is to, to share story and get in contact with the divine. Right. So that's part of, of the specific tones is of his ritual. He's for me, uh, a, you know, if I were to specifically choose a tone, it would have been very specific with that, that glass of water and, and that measured out perfectly in his hand. Like that would be the, a very detailed ritual that would mean something to that shaman. You know, that person who's doing the magic. I think that's a, that's a big thing. Also the cane. No. Okay. Maybe you guys know, maybe you don't. Um, so the, the scale tattoo they show is if we don't know already that it's refer, it's <clears throat> referential to the, um, Egyptian myth that your, your soul at the end is, uh, measured. Your heart is measured to the weight of a feather. And, uh, so they kind of judge your sins to your, like, I don't, I, I've, I've always been kind of him and haw about that kind of thing, but I kind of get it now as like a real kind of weighing your deeds to your co- conscience, maybe. How Howdy puts it actually. Can I cut in here? Yeah, please do. Because Howdy educated me about this. I asked him about it specifically. And his answer wasn't so much as, the weighing of your heart being you were good or you were bad, but actually how much did you live up to your true self and right. your reason for incarnating? So that might actually be to do wrong things, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, it's more about does your heart balance with the feather because your heart gets heavy whenever you are not true to yourself. It has nothing to do with per se good feeling good or feeling bad or being the good guy or being the bad guy. Cause even those are kind of mm, low minded concepts, not that there isn't good or evil in the world, but that we're all obviously a mix of both forces and no one lived a perfect sinless life. So, you know, and how do you measure the weight of one sin against another? A lot of that is highly subjective to who the victim was and who the perpetrator was and, you know, all these different things and the circumstances. So, you know, what would it take for your heart to be heavy enough with sins to not weigh the same to the not balance with the feather? Probably like that's impossible. <laughs> that whole thing is like a farcical idea of like the wrathful judger at the end of the, your days, in my opinion. Right. But yeah. for your heart to be heavy because you were not true to yourself, that makes sense because look at how people die. People die either in a easy breezy letting go because they feel that their role was complete or they clutch and hold on and they're heavy from the, and, and they're waiting, <laughs> they're heavy. So they're waiting. They're trying to wait longer before they die. Wait heavy. Their heart's heavy because they didn't do everything they thought they should, or they did things that they thought they shouldn't or whatever. So it's more about like living up to your true nature, your true netter. Yeah. It's got a real, 
kind of banker's delight built into the narrative of heaven to say that you got to go check in at the scales. And also the fact that it's mechanical again, you know, presuming that uh, the the death experience it somehow has a, a, a mechanical system like cogs, you know, rhythmic cycles of some sort is a, a, just an interesting paradigm. Chance, if we could uh, pull up the first one I sent you about the gators, that'll probably answer Joe's uh, Joe's question. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah, let's do that. But uh, look, first, I want to refer to a few things in the chat. Papa Lee brought it up. Really good point about something flagged <laughs> makes it weaker and less spirited. That's really interesting. You get flag and flagellate. You know, he's flagged as owned by his Libra tattoo. Very interesting. And he's punishing himself, right, with walking on the glass. And then, yeah, Kaylee busting out the Sanskrit. Capricorn's name in Sanskrit is Makara. Wow. So close to Mark and the Latin word for Marctus. <laughs> wow. Which means crocodile. So Saturn rules Capricorn, she says, and Saturn is exalted in Libra. That is brilliant. And right. So Saturn, when you go back into the far, the far time, Saturn is Kronos, but it's the sun in winter. It's not really the planet that we associate with the word Saturn now in the oldest of ideas. And okay, so to make more sense of that, and we're talking about Egypt here. In Egypt, Ra had multiple forms, Ra being the sun. Ra really being like the spirit behind the sun. So when the sun was coming up in the morning, it was Horus Ra, which is basically Horus is shown as the child oftentimes with like a, a single braid, which represents childhood in the statues. And so it's the young sun, the risen one, the one that rises from the dead, if you will to connect to the Jesus metaphor. It's a Padawan. And then the hidden one, Amun-Ra, is the sun at noon, at the height of its strength, because you don't see shadows at that time. Uh, so then you have, there's more to it than that, but then you also have Atom-Ra, or Adam. Adam, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the fall of man, Adam, Atom as that's when the son is an old man and going to die or be sacrificed at the end of the day. And then it has another version of who it is when it's in the underworld, which is Osiris. But the point being that the son being more than one character is not, not just plausible. It is what it is. We've just lost track of um, in mythology and all of the tower of Babel scrambling our civilizations have received of that fact. And we've got dissociative identity disorder. And we think all these different beings are, are like separate individual gods. When, when you trace it all back, it's all emanations from the one. And there's kind of a paradox there because they are different characters, but the, uh, we'll get to this later, but it's important to point out that the Egyptians did not believe in multiple gods. They believed in one God. And that's a huge misconception that most people have. But yeah, you want me to pull up that screenshot because I have more to say about the shoes myself, but I want to hear what you've got first. I'm saving well, mine. One thing to weave into the atum, that later, the end of the day, uh, that's the at the tomb. We're going to bed. It's time to go to, into your tomb. Go lay down. Have your resurrection ritual tomorrow morning. Uh, so... Uh, 
this being the very beginning, the first thing I saw is the, the fact that he has the cloth was the very, very, very beginning of the scene is where he lays the cloth down on the table first. So that to me had, was placentatastic. I see the cane and a bowl. Cain and Abel. And then they even collide. They end up, uh, you know, the Cain and the vessel end up in conflict in this initiation scene uh, in a big way. But uh, yeah, the Cain smashes the bowl. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, but also, um, I was looking into placenta and I found this passage in Deuteronomy. Like eleven twenty two, uh, twenty four. Excuse me, eleven twenty four of Deuteronomy. Every uh, which I guess I'll read the whole thing real quick. For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command to you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out those nations from before you, and. Something, something, maybe make a table greater and mightier nations than yourselves. 24, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. This is the key. This is huge. I'm so glad you found this because it totally connects to my analysis of the shoe. Yes. Wow. From, From wilderness to Lebanon. That's from the private to the public. From the wilderness to the city. This is where Hecate stands guard. This is where there are two pillars dividing the private and the public. This is the front of your ID is the uh, public, Lebanon. The back of your ID is the wilderness. It's the private. Uh, from the river to the river Euphrates, even west of the sea. This is a very important aspect of what I think we're getting into here. The fact that every place that your foot has tread the sole of your foot belongs to you. And we're talking about a place. This is the placenta. You're a free man on the land. For sure. So I just thought I'd bring that forward for the discussion. And the fact that later on, he addresses his mother on the phone in one of his personas. And he's constantly saying, later, Gators. He's being all cutesy with his mother, right? The place where he tread in her belly, the, the, his motherland. He calls her later gators. Well, this is symbolically, these are leather gators. That's twilight speak. It's going to echo like ripples coming off the rim of that cup, going outward in concentric rings from this point. Yeah, it's so important. (laughs) What you just said is so important. These simple sandals, these leather gators are, like we said, the center of the whole conspiracy corkboard. So (laughs) let me uncork on you guys what I have on this before we go on. First of all, let's start with the fact that in Egypt, hieroglyphs and statues, the figures are usually depicted barefoot. Like you just said, where the sole of your foot treads will be yours, right? Right. Now, that's your gate, the gators of your gate. That's so good. They're gating you from the ground. They're literally a gate between your physical flesh and blood and the ground. It's so important. Okay, so in Egypt also, the sandals were often made of papyrus rather than leather. 
So <laughs> are, are we starting to see the picture here? Are we starting to see the picture here of the straw man who lives on paper? You're right. standing on the paper sea. You're yes. not a free man on the land because you are identified with the false self, the straw man persona. You have a dissociative identity right. that you think is really you. So yeah. <laughs> you're going through. That's the first. That's the primary principle angle of sorrow. This first 90 degree turn, the first right is going into the written. We're dropping down into that first 90 degree angle. We're now in the two dimensional realm officially. The mirror the, world. Yeah. And your heel is the, is what stum- you stumble into it. You stumble into the two dimensional world. It's your heel. It's your Achilles heel. It's your weak spot. We're uh, going through a rite of passage into two dimensions. Okay, and there, I'll also say, shoe, the name of a, the most common name for what we put on our feet is a shoe. Okay, so shoe is going to come up repeatedly throughout this analysis. I knew we would spend a long time on just this opening scene. (laughs) Shoe, S-H-U, is one of the gods of the Ennead, one of the first gods of the Ennead, actually. And his role was to separate heaven and earth. So the he had children. Shu had two children. I think their names were uh, Nuit and Geb. Could be getting that wrong. Pretty sure that's their names. And one was uh, Nuit was the sky, and Geb was the land. And they were locked together in an embrace, eternally copulating. This is very much similar to like the original idea of the Adam Kadmon being Lilith and Samuel. I think. Uh, that are stuck together, copulating. And then, so Shu comes in and splits the land and the sky, creating the space in which human beings can exist by creating a space in between, you know, the firmament, separating the waters above from the waters below. So Shu is what creates this separation. And when we wear our shoes, our soul is no longer touching the earth. There is a gate, our gaiters, our gate is gated and there is a separation between the land and the body between the soul, the bottom of your foot and the earth. So it's literally a schism in your being (laughs) these shoes, not that leather shoes really do that electrically, but it's symbolic. It's metaphor, right? We're talking about metaphor. Now, when it comes to rubber soled shoes, we're in a whole new ballpark where it's like energetically fulfilling this, the symbolism in a whole bigger way. But the other thing about Shu is when Shu did this separation of the land and the sky, it also brought into the world pain. Pain did not exist before that. And it's painful for these, his two children to be separate from each other. So whenever you're born into the world, you and your twin, the two children, because they're also these two, earth and sky, they're actually siblings too. Uh, they're copulating. They're connected. They're coupled. Are you not coupled with the placenta whenever you're born? And does your father either allow it or himself cut you off and separate you from the placenta? Or a father, some father does it, <laughs> somebody in a white coat or whatever. Yeah. So you guys, that's the, that's the fetters. Fetters are shackles. That's what he was showing us in that opening scene. Those are fetters of the fetter roll, the fathers of all, the Vader. Luke, I am your father. No, that's impossible. Oh, dude, I think that the federal is they fed her all. 
Because we're talking about the dark goddess here. Yes. But the last thing about Shu is he created pain. Pain enters the world because of this. And what does he do with those shoes? He puts glass in them and walks on them. It's pain. It's all there. It's S-Pain. It's Espana. It's the first pain. It's the principal scar. It's the initiation into uh, MK Ultra. Sorry, we cut your dick when you got here. Mind control. So that's it, guys. That's the whole show. (laughs) We did it. Nice work, gentlemen. I mean, really, that's that's the most important thing of of all in everything. Sorry, we cut your dick, man. Gordy, I know you want to riff on all this stuff we just laid down, though. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can move on. We have a lot we of ground. We can cover. move on. Uh, dude, I just love the nerdiness of this shit. Look at this. Okay, so I didn't have a, I don't have a Moon Knight action figure. Not that nerdy. But I do have the inspiration for it. This is the uh, the little, I can't remember what kind of these are they're a specific kind of miko doll anyway the action figure that like they made uh um a bunch of horror movies and stuff like this this is boris karloff's uh mummy and Ah, we know that uh i mean they they took all these things from other other previous incarnations like uh, batman was a version of dracula which was a version of you know whatever. So, um, it's the same thing with this. You can clearly see it's, he's modeled after a mummy and, uh, this is what comic writers do. But what's cool, I think about this character is, you know what? Let me hold on to that. Well, you that'll, know, come, I, that'll come back up. You know, I find it fascinating that they don't use the term mummy. I know it's uh, right. Like they, they that was like that was a prominent thing in the seventies versions. Like like yeah. he was like the mummy hero guy, and it was like right around the same. Oh, he froze again. Uh, well, yeah, I think there's something to that. The the thing that they don't talk about. Uh, for some reason, uh, when you finally think of it, it really hits you in the face with like. Why are they talking about mummies? Like they, there's a complete lack of mummification even acknowledged. Well, uh, the only time it, it's acknowledged is in the in the uh, right after this scene, they oh show him going into the into the gift shop or whatever that he's going to his job, uh-huh. and he has to explain to the girl he's trying to distract her from vandalizing one of the displays, so he takes her over to the other. Uh, sarcophagus and starts talking about how they suck the brain out of the nose. Okay, yeah, that's but right. They also show some of the, the tools for that in later in the series, whenever they're actually in one of the tombs, mm-hmm. and there's like zombie mummy priests. Yeah. There's a little of it there. But yeah, that is interesting. He's initiating her in a creepy way in the the craft of the embalmers. Yeah, we, we're going to have a lot to say about that part too. Yep. <laughs> There's a bunch there. Um, so the other interesting thing about Shu that I'll throw out there right now is that he's often symbolized with a lion head. And he represents dry air and the force of preservation. So I feel like that 
fits wow. because you're talking about mummies. Wow. Thank you. That is very valuable. And in fact, that'll kind of bounce off of the, the thing we did with the wizard of the wizard of Oz recently. Uh, I've always thought that the, well, we'll get to that when we do, but that will be important. The lion head. So important. Okay. So, um, does anybody know what's up with the Bob Dylan song at the beginning either? Isn't that what it is? Is there a Bob Dylan song earlier in the show? Yes. Isn't that what's playing when he's step walking on glass? Some weird Bob Dylan song. Can't yeah. sing. Terrible singer. I didn't bother to look that up. If anyone wants to check into that, let me know. I, so, did. I did, but it was the first time I watched it a long time ago. And just because Bob I, Dylan definitely talks about selling his soul to the Demiurge or whatever. Yes. It in is inter- a very heavy. The lyrics to that part, that song were very heavy and very pertinent. I wish I had them pulled up because it was it was pretty heavy stuff. That music didn't. That's weird. That didn't. Uh, I didn't look into that. But all the wake ups in the in the music. Did you guys see that theme? We'll get there. In the uh, theme music. Yeah. Okay. The music has a Bob very Dylan's clear song. theme. You pulled it's not it up. A Bob Dylan song. It's every grain of sand. Oh. So, right off the bat, listen to listen to the lyrics of this. In the time of my confession, in the hour of my deepest need, when the pool of tears beneath my feet flood every newborn seed. That's the yeah. Nile inundating. There's a dying voice within me reaching out somewhere, toiling in the danger and in the morals of despair. Don't have the inclination to look back on any mistake. Like Cain, I behold this chain of events that I must break. In the fury of the moment, I can see the master's hand in every leaf that trembles in every grain of sand. So there it goes on beyond that, but shoot. Pool of tears, that's a pot, P-O-T. It's the top. It's the kyborium. It's the placenta. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, man. Nice. Okay, let's jump to uh, five seconds later. <laughs> Moving really fast here. <laughs> okay, so he's shown waking up in his bed frequently in this series with uh, ankle, his ankle chained to this post, this pillar, positus. Okay, so I thought, what's the uh, what's the right ankle have to do with in the biofield? And what do you know? Your right ankle in the biofield. And it's kind of funny. It's not funny. It's obviously divine synchronicity. But I've had two clients this week for biofield uh, tuning who both had severe. I say severe just because, you know, like fully blocked, not like life threatening, but severe blockages in the ankles. Which I had never actually really dealt with that extensively before, a little bit before. but. It led me to this realization that I'll maybe talk about more later of how important the ankles and the knees are in the biofield. You know what? I should just say it so I don't forget and think I checked it off the the list. So, okay. Later, when we talk about the Aeneid and we wonder, like, what's the difference between the septenary and the Aeneid? You know, the seven or the nine, which is it? Right. Uh, What if, because, okay, the ankles and the knees, when I started, like, really tuning into them, they're talking to me through the forks, that is, as 
strongly as the other chakras. So I'm thinking like, what if the ankles and the knees are like hid the uh, like hidden chakras, if you will? It makes me think of the chariot card, makes me think of characters in mythology cut off at the knees, you know, makes me think of snakes for legs, <laughs> all kinds of stuff like that. But um, the right ankle in the biofield specifically, when it's blocked or, you know, chained to a post like this, it represents a person who is indecisive. They're stuck in two worlds. They're trapped between worlds. They, you know, one foot in, one foot out type of uh, type of energy for the right ankle specifically. So for a character with multiple identities and not sure if he's in the waking realm or the dream world at any given time, very important symbolically that it's his right mm-hmm. ankle that's chained specifically because the left yeah. ankle has a different thing going on. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, ankle. Well, that sounds a lot like Ankh. And the Ankh is a super prominent symbol in Egypt. I mean, yeah. most of the gods are shown with Ankhs in different depictions. Definitely, definitely. Our guy Shu carries an onk. So it's like onk sounds like ankle, doesn't it? All right. Nice. Okay. So then I was like, all right, all right. Let's look further into the onk. You know, let's look into this some more. And yo, I found out that according to our high and mighty Egyptologists, the ankle, or the, I'm sorry, the onk symbolically has a hieroglyph has another meaning. It could mean the onk, which is your connection to the source of life. Or it can mean the strap of a sandal. Oh, snap. That's biblical. Uh, we need LaBranch up in here on that. That is good stuff. What are you thinking, Gordy? No. All I can see just now is, is how... So when, when Gabe... Like, we all kind of started doing this... And that first uh, midnight movie, like over a year ago, um, we started seeing this theme of books stacked on the floor. Like nobody uses fucking shelves anymore. Like and ever <laughs> since, <laughs> ever since, like um, Metropolis on, like nobody uses shelves. And I'm, I'm looking at it in the background right there. <laughs> There's stacks of books. Looks like my house. I don't have bookshelves or anything. Just books, just sitting all over the place. That has been a strange, haunting theme throughout. No matter where we go, that it's <laughs> following us, dude. <laughs> it's following us. Um, yeah, man. Uh, you know, the other thing is that we're gonna get into. This is the the deed of of surrender. The whole thing is there's so much theme thematically throughout this whole series about surrender and what you surrender to, um, which is how you get an infestation, people. Um, I'm just kidding about that, but sure. Yeah, I mean, you you be very choosy what you su- surrender to. Um, and this is also a Marvel theme. Uh, Ghost Rider ends up the same way. He chooses a demon, which if you read any, read the mystic Bible, they're essentially the same thing as a pan, somewhere in the pantheon of Egyptian gods. Um, but they'd be like, you know, brother, sister kind of thing, like 
same level of spiritual um, strength or understanding or or whatever. But that's just one I one theory. But you people submit to certain powerful things. Yeah, you'll get you'll be powerful in and you'll pay for it with your soul. Yeah, man. Yep. Well, back to the soul being the bottom of the foot and the onk ankle sandal connection we have going here. It is kind of like your ankles, like he has his ankle shackled. Your ankles are sort of this bridge or strap connecting you to your soul, which is the bottom of your feet, which is touching the earth, which is, you know, the big oversoul of the world that is the world. Yes. If you will. Yeah, man. Yes. I definitely, so we are definitely still in birth ritual here. We are still in initiation. We are still fresh out of the, out of mama coming into the world that they're weaving for us. It's definitely got that umbilical cord component, right? It, also, the uh, the uh, Egyptian initiate, they have a little tether attached to their head, you know, like a, like a uh, Padawan. You know, the Padawan had the rat tail, uh, very Egyptological. Uh, yeah, that was symbolic of childhood. And then when you were initiated into adulthood, they shaved that. Right. And so this is like sometimes you would even speaking of disassociative identity disorder in the priesthood in Egypt, when you went through the initiation to be like be fully involved in the priesthood, they even gave you a new name and they would chart that on the day that was fortuitous for you. And you'd have a whole new birth chart and they would pick the day to try to like compensate for any weaknesses you had uh, before. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we are dealing in uh, the scene has uh, obstetric value because it's a birth ritual. He's coming out of the bed, like we were saying. So reflecting back on things that we do to our children in their birth experience, uh, one aspect I see here is like we're saying, this has to do with that, uh, you know, bonding and the being tied into the fictional reality. Uh, but another thing I'm starting to think about, guys, is uh, some some people are taught uh, learn language that is mathematically uh, intrinsic to speaking, and so like the Greeks used isopsophy in their language, so it was not separate to have math and language as two parts of the brain. So there are some people who are born and taught from the beginning to think uh, in gematria, and that's a very powerful tool to have. Uh, so in one aspect, I think of him being uh, a birth ritual where he's uh, restrained has a lot to do with how we teach our children. Math and language are two totally different parts of your brain. You know, I think about that. I've always thought about that with hieroglyphs. Like if we're taught as symbol, if we're language is in symbol and our whole language can flow with picture, what it's how creatively maybe we were already a lot more advanced. Like we've, we've fucking stunted ourselves as creators, man, by taking out our imagination and telling people kids, they can't have imaginary friends and shit. You can't figure your way out of a wet paper bag. But if we could teach in symbol, like this is, was always like fascinated symbol, like, what Mario does has always been like one of those things for me. When I was a kid, I would have these 
um, I started, my first job was in a, a t-shirt shop and we, we had all these books of design of, of just tons and tons and tons of design. And I would look through those. And when I was before that, when I was a kid, I would look at, just look at the brands like cattle brands. Cause my, my family were cattle ranchers, but uh, the brands were like the coolest thing. Right. That's them, where the, they meant stuff. Yes. Yeah. That's where I think that's the origin of sim bowl. The same bowl has the sim bowl on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's anyway, going back to the, yeah, lots of cow too in this, uh, lots of, uh, Taurus kind of food. Hey, I got a question. Does anybody know if if the scales? So in his in the tattoos, the you find out the the rest of the cult has those those uh, scale tattoos. But in the tattoo, it's the scale is of the two um, gator heads, right? Yeah, and while you're while you're froze, let's just point out that reptiles have scales. All right. Okay. Yeah. You're back. Very now. good. Okay. So, is that the this the crocodile heads? Is that a normal Egyptian thing? Because I just remember like just scales. Is that a Marvel design? I think it's a Marvel thing. Yeah, okay. I think so too. Okay. Yeah, they're taking certain liberties for sure. On Libra. Liberties on Libra. They're taking so many liberties. Oh, man. Yeah, that's just the start of it, right? Oh, yeah. We'll have a few more things to point out. I'm not expert enough to say all the places where they took liberties, but I'm working on it. You know, I'm really enjoying Howdy's giant book. But I got a long ways to go, as you can see from my (laughs) my, uh, paper mark there. But okay, so let's jump into, uh, let's move forward. Um, this doesn't need to be said a lot about other than, well, I mean, if you guys want to say more about it, there's a continual running theme where he's talking to somebody who can't answer or who doesn't answer or who isn't even there. So here's him talking on the phone, like Gabriel pointed out. And at the end, he says, Laters, Gators. And every time he is shown talking to his mom, she, it goes to voicemail and he's leaving her voicemail and we'll maybe leave it at that and reveal why that is when the plot reveals it. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, we can get there. It's, it's not like that big of a thing. I think unless you, unless you see it, Gabe, like, cause we don't hear that. We don't know that his story yet, but yeah, there's lots of, uh, six sense little, things like that that you don't see the first time yeah well put that's exactly what it feels like uh there's a strange like impotence instilled uh in the fact that he's like uh speaking but there's no effect it's kind of like he's maybe he's not there he's he's a ghost in his own world kind of thing oh and then there's this goldfish too the goldfish that he's feeding all right that is important because the goldfish represents good fortune or wealth, good luck, but his goldfish has a uh, is missing a fin, so it's like broken fortune, bad luck. And then 
as a general spiritual symbol, the fish would represent wow. like as Pisces, the unconscious self right. or the higher self and, and you know, the deep self. And this right. is a deep self that's got, that's busted. It's broken. Right. It's been it's missing a fin. And then we find out later that um, one of his, pers- that his actual birthday is March 8th, which makes him a Pisces. Right. Well, yeah. Glad we got that in there because this is his birth scene. It makes perfect sense. Oh yeah, that's his birth sign. <laughs> yeah, it's his sun sign. Very good. Okay, so then back to the symbolism of the unconscious self. As he's getting ready to leave the apartment, you see that he's got like fifty locks on the door, and you see how the shadow is playing here. There's a lot of symbolism of his shadow and him shown prominently side by side as if it's, you know, very much this uh, other persona, Gemini thing type deal. But, you know, this symbolically, if you just look at this one image, you're basically demonstrating that he has a lock on the door of his psyche, locking his shadow self away. All that is being shown in this one image here. Yeah, I mean, what what they're really doing is they're like beating us with the dead horse whose name is foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the next screenshot. What's that, Gordy? Oh, I wanted him to do the the typical Disney thing and and have it be like Peter Pan where he like sword fights with his own shadow. So you practically do uh, uh, parts of this where I'm glad they didn't go that route. Like they if we really wanted to go dark, them. we should analyze Peter Pan, the original book, <laughs> right. way darker yeah. than this. Let's go ahead. Okay, so I uh, I saw some fun things on his walk to work in the background, but I just grabbed this one that I thought was interesting. How they show it in the background here, Atlantis Island, something missing. Atlantis Island. Wow, that is interesting as heck. It's just flashed as he walks by. You're not supposed to actually see it, you know, subliminal, but maybe giving us the reminder that the Egyptian knowledge is from Atlantis. You'd go past Atlantis to get to Egypt. Yeah, also, uh, you know, uh, Bacon's uh, book, Prophesizing America, was uh, the new Atlantis. And in that, he had that cool theory that uh, Tracy brings forward in uh, in that money grows on the trees of knowledge. Uh, Bacon had a theory that uh, the uh, the economy of the future would be information exchange, and that philosophers like us would just sit around and get paid to like exchange ideas on cool shit. And that is a amazing prophecy. Uh, but yeah, I think that's uh might also be what's the, what's uh implied by that. Good call. Hmm. We're definitely doing that. <laughs> and I think Celestine prophecy was kind of bringing that forward too, the uh Sir Francis Bacon of theory of uh philosopher economy. That's so weird. I just saw today a uh a tweet from Danny Elfman saying and this has got to be some sort of of meme ma- meme magic stuff that he the tweet was or it was an Instagram that his favorite 
artist of the 20th century was Francis Bacon. That's weird. That's a weird troll. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like, somebody get on that. I need to, I need to dig. I, Is he I just still alive? Quick, <laughs> What's right? going on? Like, maybe he's the, the uh, uh, what's his name? St. Germain? That's right? what I'm thinking. The, I don't know. Or one of the other ones. Oh, I've got a really wrong. good combo in the shoot that will be coming out within the week with Dr. Bear Lando from Alpha Vedic. Oh, right on. And he gets into his thoughts on St. Germain and other um, incarnations of the seven rays. I believe he called it <laughs> really wow. weird stuff. Oh, yeah. Cool. So maybe bacon's one of those. Who knows? That's cool. You, it's really you know, bacon I, my noodle I, though. I've been calling them mantles, uh, you know, just to make it like vague and unofficial, but it does seem to be like, some sort somebody has to play that role for humanity at a certain time and it gets handed down. Uh, and I think mantle is a good way to just uh, not be too specific. Yeah, it's the man who tells you about what's going on. <laughs> yeah, it's an oral tradition that, the you know, Manly P. Hall had one and he passed it on to somebody else, you know? You know, I'm so glad that we got here and this is uh, this is why we weave. Well, we're talking about avatars, essentially, and this whole thing is about a guy who becomes the avatar of a god. So it's actually quite fitting, this mantle conversation. Yeah. uh, Yeah, let's just keep going because we're going to get we're going to if I do if I do what I want to do, I'm just going to get us off in the weeds. We need to, like, stick to the task here. I guess for sure. For sure. I like the weeds with you. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to take us in the weeds, but it won't be for very long. You brought up Celestine Prophecy. Check this out. It's a piece of Celestite Ooh. that I just got. Ooh, wow. Oh, bitching. Wow, wow, wow. Supposed to, like, give you contact with uh, angelic beings more easily? Oh, buddy. Really? It's, yeah, it's like this blue color. It's really cool. Oh. And then I also got this wrap when I was at that festival last week or two ago rad and the stone is called Laramar and it was supposedly supposedly is connected to Atlantis or was used in Atlantis that's why I thought it was kind of symbolically appropriate let me make myself not big anymore yeah okay so tangent aside about crystals and whatnot here's what you're talking about where he meets the little girl he goes into the museum he works at the museum he's gift shop Stephen Grant of the gift shop. And she's throwing her gum away into the pyramid or something like it's a garbage receptacle. And there's a comment made about how the pyramid shouldn't be a rubbish dump. Now, this was interesting to me because Howdy's book, he talks about Giza, of course, a lot. And he says that he says that there's a like a main parking lot that is close to the place where you'd go to do all the touristy stuff and look at pyramids and whatnot. And that right adjacent to this parking lot is literally a landfill. And he had theorized that some of the entrance, maybe an entrance to the huge underground complex that goes beneath the pyramids or something important is actually covered up by this garbage heap. And so I'm like, why, why are we giving, why are you giving us this hint about Giza? or the pyramid and a rubbish heap, 
You know, are you telling us go look at the rubbish heap, look under the rubbish heap? That's what I was thinking. Wow, I dig that. I dig that a lot. Mm. That sounds on point. That's cool that he's there firsthand to kind of pass forward the implication to us. That's awesome. Wow, cool that you found that, man. Yeah, I mean, why else are they talking about it being a rubbish heap? You know, well, one interesting sink for me is that... uh, They don't uh, waste any moment. You know, everything is symbolically important. Oh, yeah. So I lived in uh, Boulder, Colorado for a very long time. And part of the kind of uh, tragic history of Boulder is a story about them uh, uh, pushing the Native people to one location to the next and then betraying the treaty and pushing them on to the next spot. And the final spot where they were forced onto is today uh, the dump, is the Boulder dump. And those were their last sacred grounds. And so we have turned their burial grounds into a dump in Boulder. So maybe what we're seeing is the fact that that's a pattern hmm. that they def- that they like uh, aggressively defile the burial grounds of other cultures. And uh, Ross Finn has a, a kind of a, a a weave on this in the fact that it is kind of, uh, in certain ancient texts, it's prescribed to desecrate the burial grounds of other cultures after you dominate them. And that is kind of a cultural fingerprint through history. There's something to think about. And it, and it has to do with the reason why golf in reverse is flog. It Whoa. is uh, golf courses are basically the kings of modern day imperial expansionism, uh, taking over sacred grounds of the cultures who were here before and playing the games of war on their burial grounds. It's it's pretty dark stuff. Uh, but flog, that's, flag. Fog, flag, stake your claim in other people's sacred territory. Golf has uh, got a real gnarly, gnarly spell behind the places they choose to play, put those things up. Dude, that makes so much sense. Why there's so many golf courses are in in Tucson? This and whole why area. so many golf courses are owned by the U.S. military? And they're all around bases. Yeah, dude. There's all the the big, um, like Pebble Beach. Like there's military bases everywhere. There's big golf courses. Yeah. That's That's a great connection to bring into it. Yeah. And there's another creepy correspondence and this is a real gnarly rabbit hole. So, you know, keep your, keep your guard on, but uh, apparently cement factories, Uh, cement factories, golf courses and ancient burial grounds have some kind of, Really gnarly implications, uh, but wherever you look, you'll you'll find a nice golf course with a dark history. For some reason, you also find cement uh, manufacturing nearby. Really yeah. weird. Probably has to do with underground tunnels, but we have that here too. Yeah, yeah. Weird. A mystery that will, I'm sure, come more clear as we <laughs> like these are the ones that, in life, maybe. that just bore us. We're just fight all these crazy shit and they're like, ah, military bases, golf courses, got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Play lines, dragon lines and shit. Yeah. I used to live uh, right in the hotbed of burial mounds in Boulder. Oh, yeah. And there were pyramids and burial mounds and they were just, you had to go off the beaten course to find them. 
and it was right uh, where IBM was having trucks that were clearly coming from an underground path. Were there lots of mining around there too? Tons of it. So uh-huh. yeah, I used to like live yeah, on top of all kinds of underground traffic. Yeah, dude, all over out here. I feel yeah. I hear weird booms all over. Like even you can go on the the Facebook neighborhood area. Like yeah. they're talking about it all the time. Did you guys hear that boom? Two a.m. Yeah. boom. Like like it's it's significant enough that uh, it's not just that guy, that one weird guy. Yeah. <laughs> so well, the Vol- Volkswagen discontinued the Golf car, so maybe uh, the spell is breaking. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Random, but okay, so I'm going to progress this. I'm going to push this river forward. Still talking to this little girl, and he's explaining how they pulled the brain out because they thought the brain wasn't important when they're mummifying and all that. And then she says to Stephen, he was talking about how, you, you know, you needed your organs to get to the field of reeds. And she's like, well, why were you rejected from the field, field of reeds? Which is a really weird question to be asked by a little girl. Uh, obviously, that's more shadowing of the four. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I don't know if we want to say anything else about it. What do you guys think? Well, the answer is because I'm not dead, am I? <laughs> Am I? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Do you know that for sure? Yeah. I think that could be part of the message that is trying to be encoded in this whole thing, actually, which is that our world that we're in right now is the underworld or the world of the dead. And that's why it has the dreamlike qualities that it has. Well, and what would be the difference between the world of the dead and the world of illusion, too? Because each time he he comes back into, I mean, essentially incarnating each time one consciousness goes away, the other one comes back. He's kind of incarnating, right? There'd be different aspects of his one soul. Maybe it's about the illusion. You know, I'm seeing something. The more I look at this picture, guys, Something kind of interesting here. Oh, we know what's in the back. Yeah. Well, even yeah, in the we know about the alignment of the stars and the alignment of the pyramids. Well, they would not waste the opportunity to make an alignment with this shot, you know. And it's aligning to the emergency uh, pull for emergency. The mm-hmm. red, this red emergency switch. And the child is about to walk towards it. So just to, just to, just the interesting thing, you know, Osiris's belt pointing to uh, Sirius, the dog star, that having that umbilical correspondence of a string and making an alignment, and that shot really pointed up to the emergency on the wall switch there. Just an interesting observation. No, you're right, though. It's it's kind of uh, emphasized because of the reflection in the glass, too. It's shown twice. Yes. So, yes. so it's, yeah, it's an echo of the, of the same thing. And these lights are, like, pointing to it. The whole thing wow, nice. is, is a mirror of itself. You look at the, the, the picture in the background, the, the idol or whatever in the, in the background and the people standing around, it's kind of the same thing. 
on the opposite side, but reversed. It's like the, is, the shadow version of it. Right. Yeah, they're they're kind of highlighting it. Uh, that's cool. Uh, good call on the lights because it's like the stars yeah, aligning. You know. Well, and that's that's what forced perspective is. You know, like if you're you're doing art, you're gonna. That's what the rays on the Arizona flag are for to show you show you the star. You know the that's what rays do. And when you want to emphasize something, yeah, you point just like they do in the the posters. You know, they put specific angles in it to draw your eye to whatever that is. So yeah, that's purposeful. I'm sure of it. Okay, so here's another fun thing. You brought up how the different wake up scenes and switches between minds or personalities alters is like a new incarnation. Well, I always thought that incarnation is interesting because it has the Ka in it in a way. And the Ka is an Egyptian word representing your spiritual life force, but it's also kind of an idea like, um, your spiritual double I'm thinking like your placenta, you know, your spiritual placenta is your car in a way. Cause if it gets separated from the body, then the body uh, will die. Now there's also the idea of the Royal car, which was the symbol of the Pharaoh's right to rule. So this was like a universal car that was transferred from one Pharaoh to the next. So that's interesting when we're talking about the mantle, like literally having a spirit or a possessing spirit that is what uh, puts you in the role, if you will, when you're cast. Totally. Yes. Uh, I love this idea of a mantle, you know, because it could just be a name, you know, it, uh, the head of, you know, becoming the head of household. It's uh, the inheritance. Uh, you know, uh, even, uh, even the term heir, like you're an heir to the family, uh, heirloom, so to say this, you know, these are all sacred things being passed down, uh, symbolically and maybe biologically also, you know, uh, the memory, the epigenetic memories. What else you got, Chance? Hmm. <laughs> oh, God, so much. Okay. Uh, okay, so he's working at the gift shop. He's talking to his boss, and he's complaining to her that the marketing department got it wrong and that this poster of the Ennead, which we don't get to see the whole poster at any point, but he's complaining that the poster only has seven gods on it. So now we're into the whole can of worms of is it seven or is it nine? This is a huge question. Why, why do we have a septenary? Why is it seven chakras? Why is it seven colors? What are the, where are the other two? Where's eight and nine or one and two? Is that your ankles and your knees? Is that the colors white and black? Are they colors? But the uh, important thing about here in terms of kind of misinformation and some bullshit oh, yeah. <laughs> is that they got Hathor on here. It's not going to be for whatever reason. When I screen share stuff on Streamyard, what's on my screen is brighter than what comes through on the Streamyard side. But as hard as it is to see, 
at the very bottom, and I didn't maybe get the perfect screenshot of it, but Hathor is shown as part of the Ennead, and Hathor is the cow is a cow goddess. She was a consort of Horus, but she was not one of the original nine of the Ennead. So we're miscounting it, and we're putting the we're putting a goddess on there that doesn't belong, and it's a goddess of the bull, which is Taurus, and this is happening in you know the liminal space between Aries and Taurus. This whole show coming out. What do you guys think? This Maybe is that. huge. Go ahead, Gordy. Oh, I was just going to say it was a marketing thing because of Disney that used that character essentially in Doctor Strange. The female bull character. Oh, oh, right, right. Yes, that is very interesting. They're setting us up for uh, the season, for the spring, uh, you know, uh, going into the Temple of the Bull. That's tax. When we cross over tax day, 415, the X on the on Alima, we're going into the Temple of the Bull. And your taxes are going to Hawthorne. And this is uh, where they get the authority to dress you up in a fictional persona and poke that persona with pins and needles like a voodoo doll to control you. This is Hawthorne. She does not belong on this uh in the Enneagram. Yeah, you and I talked to the folk for like two hours a while back about Hawthorne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, let's get it. Yes. Here we go. Yeah. Belfergers Prime. Can we, can we put this into an explanation that fits our weave right now? Yes, absolutely. Sorry, we cut off your junk. Yep, for sure. <laughs> so, uh, this this is a crazy mathematical monster that it lives. It's an inevitability in uh, mathematical systems, and it has many incarnations and functions and expressions that uh, are very eloquently encoded in our language, in our culture, in a way that uh, I think very few people appreciate or fully grasp, myself included. I'm only beginning to grasp uh, the the significance of this Belfagor's prime. And essentially, it is a veneration of Hathor, the bull-figured Egyptian goddess, uh, who I do believe is a blood ritual sacrifice that everybody collectively is required, mandatory, that we all participate in for all of the males, for all of the alpha figures, for all of the... And then we're going to... The worst part of this spell, the mind control of it all, is that then we're going to tell you that the people, the male leaders of society, we're going to tell you that they're privileged to be there, that they're lucky to have had their stuff cut off. Uh, and, uh, it's very profound. It's very profound. But uh, essentially, this, uh, Hawthor character, it turns out these ears, uh, we're quite convinced that that's how you initiate the circumcision. I think that's how you pull the foreskin forward and initiate the cut for the, for the, uh, for the bris ritual. And so that's pretty creepy to think about. Yeah, the the goddess cults of the past really 
did have a thing with circumcising the male priesthood. Yes. <laughs> yes. And this the word is, officer means eunuch of the Pharaoh. Right. This is where the Ophi comes in to the Ophiolatry that is informing our culture just behind the scenes. And there's so many things that are, you know, uh, we think of as ancient ritual or ancient ceremony or somehow it makes us feel comfortable with these ideas if they are long, long gone, uh, far off in the past, but they are intrinsic to the culture we're still a part of. So this is, you know, animal husbandry and social Darwinism, treating humans like animals and marking them into a cult, a culture. So I found Hawthorne on the $100 bill. Uh, This uh, inkwell, it has a bell uh, imprinted on it, and it's the Liberty Bell that is cracked in half. So I cut the image in half along the crack, and I reversed left and right, and I fused it together, and sure enough, there's this image of Hawthorne right there. So this is the $100 bill. And what does an inkwell do? You use it to write or author something. Authorize to this is the incarnation, <laughs> the, the incarnation. You know, this is the vessel, the chalice, the cup. Uh, so yeah, we found a bull on the bell on the bill of the $100 bill, and uh, th- this is uh, kind of the mystery that keeps on coming around everywhere I look. It's really kind of profound. So I looked up Taurus you know, the the season of Taurus, May in general, and it's got a gematrological value of 100 in the most simple of ciphers. And I found that very interesting because we're looking at the $100 bill. Um, and then also part of this whole Belfagor's prime and the six times six times six has to do with TAX and the word tax that we pay as we go into the month of May, as we go into the temple of Hawthor, the Taurus sign, we pay a TAX. Well, that's a 216. And if you roll down a little chance, you'll see the Giza, the diameter. Oh, yeah, tax of, day is right before Taurus season in April begins. Right. And this is also the is significant of the diameter of the Giza pyramid and the delta. Its, its relationship to the delta has a 206, uh, I believe, mile diameter. So this is a very sacred, very significant number and code and cipher, and it has geomantic value. It connects to the earth even. Uh, it runs that deep and that old that this system is still important. And this is where veneration, we're talking about Venus, we're talking about, look how it's shaped like a fan. The delta looks like a fan. Uh, this is the grand finale is the final point of the contractions of, that your mother had all going to the placenta and uh, the, uh, this origin point of the knowledge. Yeah, and you have so much to decode on the 216. And you also have a very like placenta-esque <laughs> image here when you look at the delta. It's a trip. With the circle around it, oddly enough. There's so much more in your brain about the 216. We've just like barely scratched the surface on that. Um, And the fan symbolism is super deep as well. A mystic fan of Bacchus. Fan in Latin is Vanus, which is a lot like Venus, having to do with some purification symbolism. But 
we can't we can't unpack everything in the world i guess <laughs> we do our best uh gordy do you have anything to add to our you know hathor <laughs> question here no man i just enjoy this i just like to <laughs> let you guys like go off and and enjoy the show for a little while it's kind of fun yeah. There's nothing I'm gonna like. I'm. I know that in certain scenes, I'm like I'm looking at them going, "Oh, there's that." Oh, I'm gonna let them do that. That's that's fun for me to watch you guys do that because I there's t- tons of shit that I will not see, and that's why I think this is fun. Like we see different things that that either of us don't get. Totally, it's cool. I love it. Oh, and you know what? One one thing we should maybe point out is that having Hawthor come on this Enneagram and like Bogard the whole scene, you know, they're they like culturally appropriated the whole thing. It's like normalizing the what I'm I'm going to start calling the hidden Handela effect. <laughs> you know, it's like get, it's like telling us get used to it. We just fucking make this shit up, and now you got a seven pointed Enneagram, but you still got to call it Enneagram which means nine, but it's only got seven people, but you still got to call it an Enneagram. You know, well, it's so, such Disney shit though, because like if you're cutting out one and two, you're, that's basically like separating you from mom and dad. What is Disney always doing? Right. Yeah. They're orphaned and they're heroes. Oh, and what if those are the two chakras? What if? That's what I'm right. saying. And one of those was, was maybe the ankles. Right. I was thinking that too. The seven and nine chakra. Either that with the planets too. How Kaylee was talking about how they re- relate to the planets. Either it's seven or it's nine. So right. Pluto's not a, a it's a planetoid or whatever. It's been demoted. What does that mean? We only have eight planets now? But the the planets were supposedly the chakras, right? The seven. And I gotta point out planets is a Anagram for placenta. And that whole concept too, we got to remember that the earth is the heart chakra. Mm-hmm. So even though it's not one of those lights in the sky, if we're talking about, I mean, I, well, is it the heart chakra? I should say, is it, <laughs> it could be, <laughs> it is pretty green and uh, loves to make green things. And it's an anagram for heart, but that might not necessarily make it the heart chakra, so to speak in a big, some table of occult correspondences. I am very interested in the question of why seven and not nine. I do think it has to do with the rift between God or gods and men, which uh, we're about to get to. So maybe we'll just push forward. Some of the screenshots are less important than others, but just to reiterate certain symbolism here, he is talking to this painted statue man. (laughs) Oh, you know what? For some reason, this guy makes me think of Benjamin Franklin. I don't know why. (laughs) And uh, we forgot to give Benjamin Franklin, our customary blessing. I was yes. hoping, would you do that for us, Gordy? Fuck you, Benjamin Franklin! Yeah, he came up. You know, we gotta let we gotta let him know how we feel about him. Right, <laughs> big time, big time. Good call on the Benjamin Franklin lookalike. I feel that. I feel that. I don't know why. Yep. So this guy's name is Crowley, right? Is it? Yeah, his name is Crowley. Guys, this. this I didn't know he had a name. Yes, this guy is passing the torch big time. So, and I love that you said he reminds you of Benjamin Franklin because Belphegor is the spirit that is embodied by the thinking man. 
the one that everybody's confused as to whether his hand is on his forehead or his chin, the name of the thinking man. Mandela effect. The one that has been Mandela affected, its name is Belfagor. So here we have a Benjamin Franklin, whose name also has the 216 in it, and who has a 16-squared magical square named after him, whose character is is Crowley. Uh, Crowley. I think it's like Crowley. It's like the old spelling of Crowley. And so, yeah, this guy is passing the torch from Ben Franklin to Crowley to Belfagor for sure as a statue of gold, much like uh, the golden lion, the bullion, the bull lion, for sure. I love it. I kind of missed that. My screen is too small. I missed what Snake said. Oh, Snake said, uh, Chance and Gabriel get 90% of my attention. Looks like I'm pretty up to date. Thank Thanks to all of these gorgeous men's telegram channel. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, all th- me, you and snake, we all got a, some prominent Leo speaking of bull lion. Also, like we already said, shoe symbolized with the lion head. And then we have this Hathor intrusion, which is the bull. So, you know, bull lion, bull lion is definitely thematically on point. So he's always talking to people that can't respond or won't respond. He's talking to the statue man about his, his problems. And um, here we see, I probably only snapped like a third or less. And I probably missed some of the times where the character is shown prominently in a reflection. I grabbed a lot of screenshots of that because I want to keep hammering home this mirror world symbolism and how much they just nonstop do it. But he uh, also has... He stops and takes a picture for a couple here who want a picture with the statue man. I don't know if there's more to say about that. What do you guys think? Um, the gold thing is definitely being the antithesis of the moon. That's the, that'd be the sun character, right? The gilded with gold, the gilded man. Oh, but interesting. He- okay. And he's a fake statue. And it's, so is it suggesting that the, uh, the sun gold masculine connection is incorrect because I have like a whole weave later on about the Benjamin Balderson masculine moon feminine sun thing that I think is being encoded in here that the uh, Amit is a, really a sun character. Ooh, Joshua in the chat says uh, golden Crowley is like saying Negretto crown. Oh, that's true. Crow and crown wow. are super connected etymologically. Wow. That is a nice one. I love. Nice, Joshua. Yeah. I love when the puns are like little booby traps of a hint mm. that, you're, that you're on the path. I think we found a, a little pun landmine right there. That's great. But this is this scene really is one, one of those uh, six sense things where you don't the way he interacts with the uh, tr- uh, tourists is very passive because he's like, Oh yeah. And don't forget the tip. Okay. All right. And then he tells them later gators. That's how he exits the scene. Hellfire club is the name of the gang of kids in the new stranger things. Joshua says, what? Uh Yeah. Yeah, They have t-shirts. Wow. This, this Belfagor prime thing is deeply entrenched in the, uh, hidden Handela effect, uh, phenomenon. I'm pretty sure it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. That golden Crowley Negredo crown is very, very interesting too. There's more to say about that, but we should 
Move forward. Okay, so the next thing that happens is he goes home and he's trying to keep himself awake so that he doesn't have a identity fracture. Because if he goes to sleep, the other the other guy might take over. Okay, so here it says, here's some here's some quick flash bullshit, <laughs> bail shit. Originally, the he's reading this book right to stay awake, and it says originally the Egyptian, originally the Egyptian reverenced one god only whose likeness was never represented. He being worshipped in silence. His characteristics, however, were represented by visible something to make this plainer when they blah, 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 blah. So you can only read so much of this, but all right. It says originally the Egyptian. Okay, so this isn't really BS, actually, to be fair. (laughs) They're not saying that they're not going on to say what you would expect from the cultural norm, which is that they do worship multiple gods. Later in Egypt, they did. There was like a fall to fetishism, like happens when all cultures get corrupted by empire. But this thing about God being hidden and worshipped in silence, that's the most high. Uh, the most high God would be uh, um, Amun-Ra. You know, the this is like the lion or the, the cancer keystone or the Leo, that region in the sky clock. And then it says... He being worshipped in silence. Well, what do they say about silence? Silence is golden. Right? What is the word audio? Which means sound. Aw, A-U, which is gold. Dio, which is God. So silence is the golden God. Silence is audio. Yes. This makes me think of... Um, of issue being this uh, character from old Egyptian mythology who was present but did not have distinguishing characteristics. They seemed to lack a personality. Um, and it was later that this person, that this character who was very uh, bland and somewhat meaningless was given many attributes and be- almost became the opposite uh, became uh, inundated with meaning, but in the beginning it had uh, very little meaning. But it makes me think of issue, issue. <laughs> and the- funny you say that because the next screenshot is shoe, is shoe, is shoe. <laughs> uh, they never once mention shoe in any of the plot or the narrative or any of the characters. Never say shoe as a god or refer to him at all. But when it's flashing through things that Stephen is doing. In this scene, it flashes to this page and it's show enough, show enough. There it is. <laughs> so that fit, like immediately confirmed for me that, okay, this shoe at, at the beginning scene is definitely telling us some big straw man, papyrus, paper C, papacy story. And he's, you know, here's shoe showing up on paper. Okay, so I'll move forward. Uh, here's another screenshot from there. From there, um, interesting to. I'll just skip past this one. We need to move forward. Okay, this is the part. <laughs> <laughs> this screenshot shows the uh, the rift between God and man. So I think this is highlighted here because we're supposed to. This show is supposed to remind us of the separation between us and our higher self 
or universal ether or source or what we consider God, the hidden one. I mean, can you see ether? No. (laughs) Is it always present everywhere? Yes, it's the hidden one. And it's the interconnectivity and communication of all things. It's the aspect of universe that is not separate and cannot be separated. I understand this completely from remote sound healing sessions because it could not work in any fashion as mechanistically as it does if there was such a thing as divisible ether. There's just one ether. It's not, it's a, it it does not exist in the realm of quantity. (laughs) I'll just say it like that. It exists in the realm of existence. (laughs) And uh, so this Ennead, the rift between God and man, is that when Ennead was cut down and hewn down to seven? I think so. I think so. I think that's like the divine parents, mom and dad, God and goddess, cutting us off from that, which is are actually inner spiritual forces. So it represents like the o- original disassociative identity disorder when we lose track of the the realization that we are the creative intelligence and the generative principle of creation. We are that. We have that within us. And um, then we externalize those ideas in fetishism or idolatry, which is what they want you to think was going on in ancient Egypt. But this is all symbolic of the uh, initiate path to deeper levels of self-gnosis. I mean, the netter... The, the gods were called the netter, which is where we get the word nature. The Egyptian gods were the netter. Right, right. And, you know, one other cool thing here is when you combine left and right, you get rift. The rift, the right and the left. It's that, uh, that split mind. And one thing I see, uh, just another sub. And that's what Shu does. That's what Shu's entire role is for the record. The dividing line, yes. And another, just a sub-theme that I'm keeping like a side theory going is that idea that, um, you know, we were taught language and math in separate parts, separate parts of our thinking and our brain completely, compartmentalizing uh, math and uh, gematria in language. Uh, and I think that there is a holistic way to learn how the system works that includes gematria. So that's a, just a theory I'm holding space for. And that's just one dimension of it. I mean, the hieroglyphs were multiple dimensions of meaning right. beyond gematria, phonetical, and right. sim- strictly symbolical. There was a lot going on there. Yep, there could be musical and all kinds of things going on that we have not thought about. You know, and there's seven intelligences. That's interesting. There's multiple intelligence theory has a fundamental seven intelligences, Mm. but they leave themselves open for more to be introduced, which I think they have since then. But uh, yeah, I think it's uh, Robert Gardner's multiple intelligence theory. But that's interesting that we're talking about seven in its relationship to the Indian. Okay, so here's another thing. He's playing games with himself, doing a Rubik's Cube. Cube, reading a book, which is cube backwards. Oh, man. (laughs) Trying to stay awake. Back to this idea that maybe the show is trying to tell us that or suggest to us the belief that we're in the realm of the dead right now and that that's what this is. And that, okay, awake 
is first of all a funeral. <laughs> a wake is a name for a funeral. Also, a wake is a disturbance on the surface of water caused by a boat passing is usually what it's caused by. And that symbolism comes up later. And we need to make note of that. The awake caused oh, yeah. by a boat. Cause there's right. big, big stuff going on with that, you know, but yeah. Um, the world of illusion, if you will, the world of vibratory form could be seen as a wake or a disturbance and ripple upon the waters. The waters representing the stillness in the stillness. I mean, the silence, the stillness of water is clear. It's completely clear if it's just water. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's all there, man. It hit me. I got a big ping on that one. Nice. I see so, that. Yeah, I guess I guess what I'm going to say is the mind of God being the still waters. That's the void. This the nothing that all the something comes from when disturbed. Yeah. It's like when the emanations are, uh, when the emanations dissolve, you know, the, the tranquility that, uh, that placid water. Okay. So, oh, and of course, if we didn't make the connection, the Rubik's cube in the book being like the world of illusion, you know, the cube world, that whole chestnut. Right. Which, yeah, I've been thinking about a lot more how cubala and like six cubed, you know, is six times six times six, which is a thing that's really coming through pretty hard right now for me. But that's cubing a thing is bringing it into the three dimensional giving it three-dimensional value, and that's the yod, the yod dimensional. The trinity, the trimurti. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, number does that. Number is always a repeating sequence of trinities. That's a really good point. Do you think it's coming up, Gabe, because of the uh, June 6th, two zeros, two, two? Yeah, man. Oh, yeah, that'll be a 666 encode on June 6th. Wow, that's coming right up. It's only a couple days from now. It's like a week from today. Yes, and also uh, June 16th is going to be a big one. Or wait, no, no, no. Uh, hold on, let me look it up. There's a day. There's Tau Day. It's National Tau Day. Really? Yes, and I think that'll be, uh, let me think. I've never heard of that. One, two, let me look it up. I have it in my phone here, but it is coming up. I'm a little worried. Uh, you know, that this Belfogor Prime coming out of the woodwork at me and it's got a holiday that's just a few weeks out. I'm like, leave me alone. I got to go to sleep. (laughs) But let me dig it out. I'll find out the exact date because it does. Tau Day is a big thing. And uh, I got to start putting this Tau thing into the Slick Dissident channel because I'm like running behind on how many revelations I've had and where it's Mm. It's popping up all over the place. <laughs> I can't keep up with to... you, dude. I can't keep up with you. This I'm is trying a, to. This one is a weird one because it's like in places I was here all along, and now I know what it means. That it comes. It comes from the Voynich manuscripts. Oh yeah, dude. The Voynich manuscript was this this thing. This fucking symbol comes from the Voynich manuscripts and they've been supercharging it this whole time, man. And it, people don't even know. People don't even know. It's right here. It's been here all along. 
just drink your Red Bull, go back to sleep. <laughs> oh man, I don't even know what you're talking about. Now I'm all excited. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got to get back on task. Oh uh, gosh, where are okay. we? We're going to tell us more, the first tell us episode, more about this bro. manuscript with Juan tomorrow on Vibrant, Gabriel. Okay, yes. Okay, what was that, Gordy? Oh, just we haven't even made it through the first one. We have another one to go. Oh, I know. But I I have half as many notes for the second episode. A lot of, you know how it is. The initiation is always the most important part. So the first episode, I feel like, has got mm-hmm. the most to explain. True. And then, you know, the later segment. There's a lot of skippable action scenes and things. Not skippable, but just not that symbolically important. Just more the flashy parts. And what happens next is he wakes up and he's in the Swiss Alps and he doesn't know why he's there. And he's hearing a voice in his head that's telling him to like, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. Interesting. And he reaches into his pocket after he fixes his busted jaw and he finds the scarab. Okay. So I looked up what the hieroglyphics on the scarab say. Oh, okay. Before you do that, um, I want to point out just before, before this scene, um, when he's walking through the, um, the last scene, um, in the street, it, it the song is I think it's Engelbert Humperdinck or Tom and Jones. I'm not sure, but it's every time I wake up. I can't and I can't remember what the name of the the rest of the song is, but it's a wake up thing. So just I just want to acknowledge it, and then we'll we'll see this as a theme. Okay, keep going, guys. We're experiencing the Tau Hercules meteor shower right now. Mm-hmm. It's a Hercules meter Yeah, that's what this is. That's why this Belfagor's Prime thing is like raining down on me. It uh, turns out Tau Day is the um, June 26th. Or maybe, yeah, June 26th is Tau Day. Which is interesting because like they're kind of restructuring Pi and f- converting it to Tau now at this point. So. Something really weird could have a whole lot of hidden Hamdella effect implications. So what's the Tau? That's cool, man. What's the uh, the code on the scarab itself? Oh yeah, well, it well, first of all, <laughs> Jen Brew just sent me this image. I got to show you guys. Wow. <laughs> I don't, I'm wow. only missing the buns. What Thank you. Chances. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, that aside, the code on the, uh, if, if anyone's just listening to the RSS feed playback of this, apparently I'm just like Princess Leia, just for the, you know, for anyone that's like, what the hell was that about? Okay, so he pulls out this scarab, and on it, it's never told to you in the show. But the internet says that it's a passage from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. O Kepri, amid his boat, primeval one, whose corporeality is infinity or eternity, may you rescue Osiris, Amenhotep, true of voice. Mm. Yeah, I have... T-O-V, that's Tov, true of voice. Mm. I feel like this is going to need to be looked at later 
maybe when we get to the boat in the duat in the uh, last episodes. But honestly, I just pulled up this translation and threw it on the slide and thought, oh, we'll probably figure it out when we're in here. But I, I think I need to do some looking into this one more deeply. Other than the fact that we're talking about being awake and now we're looking at writing about a boat, a boat on, on the internal waters or the infinity. So that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and the rescuing of Osiris part. Uh, I want to talk about this maybe in future conversations, but it's a very interesting point. You know, another thing maybe that needs pointed out is how the fact that we're in the, in the year 2020 and how uh, everything we say from now on is going to be start with the word 20. It's got this powerful twin component. It's like uh, if the word twin was a sigil or a sign or a symbol, it's getting subconsciously supercharged just by us stating the, these dates now that we're in this new century. So if you think of the century as a, a totem or a uh, egregore, we are really hitting the twin egregore hard for the next 100 years, you could, or 80-some 80, 80 years, you could say. So we are kind of charging the twin component uh, in a very interesting way, and we will be for, with our language, with our words, inevitably. So thinking of like how magic is about harnessing natural elements in accordance to your will, the twin, the symbol of twins, is, is going to get supercharged for 80 more years just by our language naturally. That's kind of mind-blowing. That is really kind of interesting. Mm. And think about the Twin Towers and how, you know, we, we're, we're venerating this symbol in an in a incredibly major way just a super powerful way. So that just kind of came to me. Uh, Cause I remember when 2020 happened, I told all my friends on new year's day, I was like, happy 2020, no more one one you know? And now I'm like, wow, well, there's a real strong twin uh, sigil that's getting supercharged uh, all the way until we get to 2030. And then we get, it kind of shifts a little bit, but that's really something to think about, right? 2020, boom. 2020, boom. We're twinning a lot with our words. Uh, I want to talk about another thing with the scarab. The scarab is a symbol of the sun, to keep it simple. <laughs> but also it has to do with dung. And uh, we, <laughs> Gabe has had some things to say recently about bull feces and uh, golden sunlight. The connections there. So I think that this is secret. This is like symbolically, this whole show is pointing out that occultly the uh, solar deity of the sun cult is a goddess and uh, esoterically it's a goddess and exoterically it's a God. So for the male, right. But the, the priesthood re reveres the female form of it. And we know that, so many of these gods are androgyne. You have bearded Aphrodites and Baphomets and Mercury going both ways and all that. So my opinion is that the God, like whether it's God 
goddess or the divine child. It's all the same being. It's the three formed being like the, whatever their sort of AI egregore might be, if that's what's going on, if there's really something they're interfacing with because the true God, like it showed straight up told you the truth in the first page of the books he was looking at that the true God before idolatry and externalization of deity and, um, you know, fetishism, the true God was the stillness could not be spoken about it's the, the Tao. <laughs> what is it? And even the Tao is spelled T A O, which looks like people say Tao, which is Taurus. But anyway, my point being that I think that the, um, it's a, it's a feminine sun and masculine moon in this depiction, which is opposite to what Western occultism and uh, magical systems believe, but makes sense on an electricity level. When you look at the work of people like Benjamin Balderson or Elsie King. So the goddess artifact, her artifact, Amit's artifact is the scarab that points the way to her. It is a sun symbol. I guess that's my main thing. Um, you know, even to the fact that she's trying to like sort of solarize the world in a way. She's trying to like bring bring light <laughs> to all the the darkness of the unknown. Her whole mission being to sort of purge all what she considers sin or wrongdoing from the past, present, and future. So there's very much like there's very much this sort of uh, judgment day, wrathful Yahweh Jehovah aspect to this Amit character. But it's a female and it's a goddess. And we'll say more about that. But I think the scarab is very important symbolic to show that like we're talking we're talking about um a female sun deity in this case. Yeah, that's definitely an inversion of common alchemy ideas is that the sun is usually masculine and the moon is female, feminine. The same thing with silver and gold. Yeah, and it, well, part of part of that weave has to do with that uh, thought that the 18th card and the 19th card, maybe that they should switch. Moon card should be 19. Sun should be 18, theoretically, which it's just kind of interesting that the that gender kind of supports that. Uh, I like that line of thinking. Thinking it's uh it's worth keeping in the pocket for sure. In uh, a quick note, I've learned that the uh, the Hopi Indian word for moon is the Tibetan word for sun, and the Tibetan word for sun is the Hopi Indian word for moon. Dude. So there's uh, opposite sides of the earth exchange point there, a convergence. That is pretty far out. Another inversion is that this goddess Amit has a cult that's worldwide, apparently, and they're hidden. and. Uh, Basically, like it's an inversion of the idea that the true God or the true supreme being is hidden, but instead they're hiding his followers when in truth, like the followers of source or creation or universe aren't hidden there in that sense. But what they worship is hidden. So they're trying to bring her into the into the physical world, manifest her into the physical world. But they're the hidden one. It's kind of a, a flip flop in that sense, too. So we're introduced to the fact that Amit has this huge cult around the world. We don't really know that that's who it is yet, but we know as the viewers. 
and you see the main villain character, Harrow is his name. He was the dude walking in the glass shoes. He has the ability to take this cane and cause people to die. <laughs> he judges them, prejudges them, or Amit does, the power of Amit. And so when this happens, if you're judged unworthy, you get basically all the juice drained out of you, dried out, preserved. You get shooed. You get shooed off this plane by SHU Shu, who is the god of dry air and preservation. And what does the sun do? It dries out the air. It doesn't necessarily pervert, preserve things, although I guess you can cure things in sunlight, right? It's like a disinfectant. But anyway, they show this happening to an old lady. She gets shooed by <laughs> Harrow and his, his cane. He canes her. And she looks like, you can, uh, this isn't the best screenshot maybe, but it was the best I could get on a time budget. She's all drained of fluids and all dried out, which is, yeah, this looks like a body that's been left out in the sun. Right. So to me, that's supportive of my theory that this Amit character is like a, the, um, the hidden aspect of the sun or the, the feminine sun. Yes. The female is the, the hidden thing in nature. Uh-huh. You know, it's the private versus the public. Yeah. And yeah, this is the uh, this is the black sun or the hidden sun. I think that's yes. what Amit represents, the crocodile. There also just a quick point is first he judges a dude, and the dude survives, and then he judges this lady, and she and she doesn't do, do so well. Uh, so there is that uh, a birthing aspect that there's the living, the living three dimensional person walking around, and there's a shell or a husk a sacrificial offering that has to stay behind. And it is kind of triggering to certain people to see like, oh, it's the white man who passes the test. And this poor old lady had to pay the price so that he could be more valuable. You know, it's uh, pretty triggering, just pretty uh, Tavistockian in my eyes. Yeah, speaking of Tavistockian, the next scene... Uh, he blacks out while the bad guys are chasing him. And when he comes back to consciousness, there's a bunch of dead people around him. Oh, and you know, no big deal. Disney just wants us to know that this child was traumatized for life by witnessing a quadruple murder. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And look at the eyeline of the, the shadow. It leads to the little child, you know, just like on the, uh, the alarm bell that we saw before. It's yeah. the same thing. The, and she's on the parallel lines the, of the pavement, too. It's like a convergence. She's in the hex X right there. Right. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go forward. Okay, so after that, he wakes up in his home. There's like a whole car chase scene. I don't think we need to break into that, do you? It's just an action scene. Um, the car chase does have the Wham song, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Right. No theme. Yes, which I got And, and this, these, all these musical themes relate to his character, too. They're trying to wake him up. Conchu uh, is trying to, or Mark is trying to wake up Stephen. From the inside. Sort of. He's trying to wake up out of Steven. Right, out of Steven, right. He's trying to keep Steven unaware. He's trying to keep the the barrier there. Mark and Steven being the two personalities inside, you know, our, our hero, if you will. 
Uh, so he has the car chase scene. There's plenty of action in that and a lot of swaps between oneself and the other. I, I, I got a, I got a graphic I shot to you there, Chance. This, this is kind of where my dig took me when I heard that the song by George Michael, right, Gordy? Isn't that George mm-hmm. Michael? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, wham. Mm-hmm. Yep. So just a quick search on uh, Wake Me Up. You just search that for images and you get this like quintessential George Michael uh, imagery. Right. Which is right here with him wearing the white, which is very reminiscent of the costume, the image that they used later to depict him as a child in his birthday suit, his white birthday suit. So just the quickest little surface level image, we come up with this powerful white correspondence with George Michael. And George Michael Powerful is, androgen correspondence, dude. He looks like a woman. Yes. And here it's George Michael's namesake is, you know, St. George or St. Michael, both are often depicted uh, killing the serpent, riding on this white horse. And look at this little red man on the back of riding along behind him. Look at that little red. Well, that's horse. symbolic of the Christ. The red persona, the sack red persona hanging off his shoulder like a conscience, like a little red uh, angel, maybe. Or the little red man of alchemy. You got it. Just part of yeah, the reddening, which is like, you know. Yes. Ex- inverted as the throwing of a baby into a furnace type of deal. There's yep. also mythology of goddesses that roasted children um, to burn out their mortality and make them their divine babies because they stole those babies from a human. That's a thing. Yes. Yep. So this uh, is where it gets really kind of cool and mystical because Chance is wearing the white today. <laughs> and I think that this costume was on purpose for sure. Oh, man, it's just perfect. But it just really got me that George Michael, on just the surface level search, he's wearing this confirming color. And what are the words on that shirt? Choose life. Life. And right now they're triggering everybody with the abortion issue. In Taurus, of course. In Taurus. Or is when they started it. Right. And so right now. And the rioting was happening in the Twin City. That's exactly right. <laughs> a year after the George Floyd thing or two yes. years, whatever. Was that a 2020 or 2021? I don't know. It all runs together. Right. So uh, at, the, at this moment, there's something. Which really is another funny. George, just by the way, it's another George. Yeah. So there are certain alignments going on that we've, we've kind of gone into this on the spiders and a couple, we've taken a couple swings at this, but the alignments right now, with uh, Mercury retrograding back to Algol, Algol having to do with alcohol and prohibition and intoxicating elements, alchemy in general, you know, it's the serpent, it's the head of Medusa. All the alchemy is focused in that point in a very powerful way. The only other one, one is 180 degrees away, which is Ophiuchus, might be the only other one that is more powerfully charged with alchemy. Well, right now that is happening in the sign of Taurus in May, where they are triggering this abortion movement all over again, all over again, and uh, stirring the cauldron of this huge social alchemical experience. And it's just a trip to see these ingredients included. And when I look at the 
the artist who sings that song, he's wearing the exact color for the recipe for the spell to work. It's nuts. Uh, but, oh, can you roll up, Chance? Do you want to show the top of what we found out? Well, let's save that for when... Let's talk about him in just a minute. Okay, well, yeah, because that... Because it really supercharges the spell when we find out what counts you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I want to go almost straight there, but first let's talk about when Harrow is judging for Amit and kills the old lady. He says, the scales see everything. So this is really important. We'll talk about this more in ep- in the second episode. I think we'll get through talking about the second episode a lot faster, to be honest, but reptiles attack threats that they can see. You know, this is a crocodile-headed goddess. This is predictive programming. She's nice. she's killing people before they do wrong or what she judges is wrong. Right. Predict means the same thing as program, means the same thing as prescribe or proscribe. Nice. Yeah, that's what the hypothalamus does. It sees into the future. It's and when it's uh yeah. It, okay, so now think about this in terms of the medical industry and what's been pushed forever, but definitely the last couple of extra years. All right. So you have <laughs> Yeah, the reptilian scales of just us, Mike. That's correct. You <laughs> Okay, so I lost what I was about to say. I got a, I got a big. The medical industry, the past. Yeah, medical years. industry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Keep me on track. Medical industry is pushing a new model of service, which is to prescribe, prescribe, program you to accept the prescription to get protected from the future evil before it even befalls you. The old model, which is representative of retribution you know the current model of law and prison system is all about after the fact something goes wrong and then we fix it somebody goes bad and we put them in jail your body gets damaged and we put it back together or whatever you get sick we heal you that's theoretically the model but the new model is that you come to us and we do you in before you before anything even happens <laughs> so i think that this amit character is a huge symbol of that honestly and when we look at the opposition between Amit which I think is occultly the sun and then the moon god Kansu who you're about to talk about who in the show they call Kanshu and while we why is it Shu we've been wondering about that well is it because of Shu <laughs> we've been why is he Kanshu in the Marvel version but in every other place you would read about ancient Egypt you'd see Kansu Kansu. Why is it Shu? I think it's to just further hammer home the whole Shu part of the story. But anyway, the opposition there is that uh, Kansu or Kanshu has a falcon head. All right. So it's the, when we're talking about Libra and we're talking about the whole region of Libra, Libra, Scorpio, Ophiuchus, we're all rolled into one sign, Aquila, the eagle. So the falcon is the eagle. It's the most high or the scorpion is the one that poisons you. The kiss of death, the low road. There's a lot of important things about that symbolism. Also, Gabe, we're at two hours and 16 minutes right now. Boom. <laughs> Check out my death. Belfagor, what up? 
So the Falcon, <laughs> yeah, the Falcon, the Falcon or the Eagle doesn't need to go take out a threat just because it sees it as a like it stays in the sky. It's above all that. You know, it defends itself when it needs to. It goes after a kill that it intends to, but it doesn't. The the way that a crocodile, if if you were like, you know, within eyesight of a crocodile, that thing probably come over and fuck you up. Because it's <laughs> so like symbolically, we're talking about this reptile, Ophiuchus, Scorpio, Libra region of the sky clock and how it can be either of these polarities of toxicity or purity, essentially. And now responses to that or to this huge, huge slam dunk about what the hieroglyph constant means. Yeah. Well, I can't, I can't let uh, Ophiuchus go by without mentioning that that is JFK's death day. That is the day that, you know, that, that kiss of betrayal is represented very viscerally in the soul of the American experience. And it's marked on that date, November 22nd, where Ophiuchus begins. Very powerful kiss of betrayal. And JFK, uh, very recently, I've uh, decoded that name to uh, represent Benjamin Franklin's magical square. JFK. JFK is a uh, 162. And 162, that's 16 squared. That's Benjamin Franklin's magical square which encodes the news. It's profound. It's absolutely profound. And it happened in 63. That is six cubed. That's the cubalistic spell of six times six times six. It's Ramarka Bull. (laughs) Nice, dude. All right. Oh, shit. This is what Here we go, guys. We've been sitting on this bombshell. Mm-hmm. Here we go. So it turns out the word Kanshu translates to the king's placenta. This is the oldest, longest standing translation of Kanshu. For many, many, many years, that is what it was translated to. However, more recently, there is a new interpretation that has been layered over, that has been rewritten, that has been edited, has been authorized. A new layer to the possible interpretation is now to go back and forth. That is absolutely mind-boggling because that is what Mercury does. Mercury it's also the meaning of a blockage on the right ankle where he wears the ankle shackle wow, right because he would go back he can't go far he, he goes the least amount of movement it's like a king in chess the chain the king is uh has reduced movement in that central kind of like the pole star you could say uh yeah and in, in the word khan yeah khan means king yes khan shu khan shu and this probably ties into mario's work with one shoot symbolism indicates the pole star because you would walk in a circle ultimately with one long foot longer than the other. But this brought forward a term that uh, I get a lot of uh, value from. Bostrophodon is the type of writing that goes left to right, right to left, left to right, right to left. This is the original uh, form of writing and communication of um, Aramaic was Bostrophodon-style writing. 
So this relates to Mercury's myth where he steals the bulls and he makes them run back and forth through the field over and over and leads Apollo on a caper to try to track these bulls back and forth. Well, what is really remarkable, remarkable, is the fact that Belphegor's prime also goes backwards and forwards. You get the same exact thing. It's a palindrome. It's a perfect palindrome. So this description of going back and forth is a strange fit for this Belphegor prime. But what is also interesting is think of a mummy. A mummy's placenta, the wrap, the swaddling of the mummy goes back and forth. It runs in both directions. Uh, So it's just amazing how almost mesmerizing the value of the definitions of this word is. And and it almost has gotten more hypnotic. The meaning of it has increased in hypnotic value as they add layers onto the potential translation of the word kanshu. And you guys know I was tripping when I heard placenta. I was doing backflips. And, oh, yeah. and then they added another layer of meaning to it to go back and forth, which is how, that's how I decode things. I look at everything backwards, forward, inside out, put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge thing. Um, because we're connecting the shoe with the cut of the, of the placenta. And also we have, Already talked about incarnation and ka in Egyptian, which the is your spiritual double, your life force energy as a spiritual twin of yourself, very much in line with what we have been putting forward. Uh, My idea regarding that the placenta actually has a spirit to it, the way that if any other body does, that is a vessel containing life force energy and has and is thus your actual twin in a spiritual sense and could be your guardian angel or your devil on your shoulder, depending on how it's treated and traumatized and cut and uh, discarded or honored and, you know, reconstituted and, and all that. So the Ka in Kansu or Kansu is also, again, connecting this idea of your spirit double to physical material of placenta. And then the, Royal Ka was something that was passed from Pharaoh to Pharaoh. And it makes you wonder, is this talking about some kind of placenta phagy that was kept in the elite bloodlines only as a transmission of knowledge or, or spiritual essence or energy forward in your bloodline, but not in others, or maybe even crossing bloodlines with that. Like they, maybe they save some of the previous King's placenta from when he was born. And then they give that to the next baby. Uh, or the next king, whenever, as part of like some sort of initiation ritual. All of these are possible. This is like wild, spot, high octane speculation, but there's a huge. I mean, everyone I hope is familiar with like uh, Kurt Kallenbach and Swede Generis and other people's work about the law side of the biological reality that we call the afterbirth. But man, but, you it's, know, <laughs> this connects to everything we talk about this, totally. uh, this show. Chance, that, that's how it goes into Beehive. That's how the beehive does it. You know, they have a little bit of the entire lineage, you know, and it gets fed on to the babies from there. So there's a lot to say about the possibility of uh, big, you know, 
what might be called a mother feeder where, uh, you know, these collections of influencers are tapping into a communal source uh, in the big crazy beehive that is a club that we're not in. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is amazing. One, we're still on episode one. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen, dude. I knew it. There's no way we could do this. Not okay. even in three. It might yeah. take four or five. I think that episode one will be the biggest weave. Yeah. Because we're laying down foundational ideas that throughout it, we're just going to be like, and here we go. The same thing is in there again. Yep. But uh, let's continue. Let's continue. We're not that far left in episode one. I could honestly see us just putting a pin in it there and uh, picking it up because energetically, you know, it's <laughs> it's fun to be more fun to be fresh. Maybe we'll see. Here we go, though. The next scene that I got a screenshot of is he's back in his apartment and he finds the hidden cell phone. <laughs> he finds the keys to his cell phone. That is, he finds the hidden key in the wall. We're talking placenta symbolism. Uh, the placenta is embedded in a wall. It's key like chi, life force energy. It's in the wall with his self own. So this is the key to his self ownership symbolically. And he's pulled it out of the trapezoid. The trapezoid has very important occult significance as well. And they definitely want to make sure that you notice it's a trapezoid by the way that they shove the camera in the hole for this shot. Nice. Yes, it's got that air sign aspect to it. It's that decapitated A. And it and he's about to get information over the airwaves through that phone. That's very interesting. Very Aquarian. Yeah, Mike's right, actually. Uh he says the afterlife episode will be like a two hour show, just that alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna keep we're gonna keep banging away at it. Uh we'll do as many as it takes because this show should be decoded in full. It really should. Um, you have anything on this trapezoid uh keys to self ownership, cell phone? Um, you know, just that the thing of of have him having to realize this is how he's waking up. He's trying to he's having to piece his past together. And this is part of his initiation is that he's figuring the shit out. And the awakening is when he realizes when he meets himself, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to point out, um, being the comic nerd that we are like, doesn't it seem like in Watchmen era, Watchmen era was the mirrors were symbology of an illusion. And now they've gone back to the symbology of the other world. Like the mirror world, the Gemini, the whole. Um, and they're trying to make that other world real. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that is the, well, I'm a. It's the metaverse. Ma- I got a lot of fucking notes on that in the, in the other episodes of that, of this whole thing. Because this whole separation of, of fake and real, it's real. And it's fake as Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a big piece of 
like culture right now and all of these things that we these films like you know anything everywhere all at once is coming out yeah and dude it, have you not seen it yet i haven't seen it yet Gabriel, please well, well one Wait, thing I haven't <laughs> seen what well, what's that chance seen what anything everywhere all at once Oh, no, I haven't seen that either. Michelle Yao. I'm very much looking forward to it. But before I see it, kind of like with... Shout out J-Lo. She sent me the file for that. I will maybe watch that soon. Before I see it, before it takes us into that possible, infinite possibility, I just want to point out that humans' ability to lie Mm. gives us the ability to open parallel dimensions. And we are... A lot of people are living very deep in the maze of this this hall of mirrors of lies and fiction. And some people are very deep in that. And so the metaphor is, is sufficient, even without the, what it's actually positing, that there is actual parallel dimensions. Uh, a lot of people live in a maze of lies that creates a parallel dimension in and of its own right. And we see that every day. All right. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta weigh in here. Why <laughs> <laughs> you're seeing all this multiverse? Okay, this is this is not an absolute statement, but I this is what I think about universe, multiverse, parallel universe. What Gabe just said is that really there's only one reality. <laughs> it's the ether, and it's one and indivisible. But through the perturbations of this ether vibration and form is created and this form has a particular pattern that it likes to create in itself you might call that the mandelbrot fractal something along those lines could be symbolic of this one this one pattern it's your scale it's your <laughs> you know it's your system of divine correspondences that we are all tapping into when we talk about these magical systems and try to refine them down to what's the actual correct set of correspondences. All right. So it's kind of like how plasma, when I talk, when I say it has a form that it likes plasma actually creates dendrites and filaments and membranes and does all this stuff just by being itself. So plasma has a self-organizing principle to it. And plasma is the state of matter, if you will, where it's really swinging both ways, where it's, both energy and matter, but it's not pure potential or ether anymore. It's starting to come into form and energy. All right. So it has patterns in itself that it likes to make pattern, pattern, pater, pateros, pater, the father, the rock. It's a solid thing. Okay. So those patterns are the, that pattern is the, or what you call earth prime. (laughs) It's the real reality. It's the, is the physical world that we're in. But as Gabe says, we have the ability to lie. And when we lie to ourselves, we create a schism in ourself. The parallel universes become our deviancy from the natural pattern. And when Gabe says some people are really far into the labyrinth of that, yeah, that's when you get further and further monstrous aberrations of the expression of human existence. You know, people get, as they get less healthy and less in tune with nature, they literally get nastier and uglier on all metrics. So my, my take on it is that the multiverse is, mm, 
it's not all bad. I guess you could say this. Our ability to lie is also our ability to create. It's embedded. It goes hand in hand with our imaginative capacity, which is also something that allows us to take what nature does and exalt it by knowing its principles, but maybe like getting creative (laughs) with the application of those principles to enhance the outcome, to create an outcome that is what nature would do, but our little shine on it. And that's part of like, that's the, that's that shine that we can put on nature. That exaltation is divine spark proof that we have it proof that we are from the same, that we are of the same creative intelligence and generative principle. That is the potential in the ether. But so the multiverse is really like our creative uniqueness. That's the real multiverse. The real parallel universes are our, our our artist selves our fully realized individual superpower X-Men self. But then the, uh, this whole thing that we've been seeing in the Disney movies, Disney shows, I think that the idea is to purge the multivirus, the multiverse, multiverse is dangerous. It's the multiverse of madness, all of that. It's to cut you off, to eschew you from, to hew you away from your root, which is that source of creative potential and originality. And, you know, when you take, <laughs> when you take the, uh, the cow poke from the Hathorites, that is a, an attempt to, cure you of the multivirus in my opinion to roboticize you that was a big that was a lot to say but i feel like that's my take on multiverse not that there's literally separate realities but that everything is here and now and here and now is all that there is but we're the ones that split we're the ones that become parallel universes within ourselves that get into conflict nice dude um yeah, that's the whole, this whole MK thing, right? Is traumatized. That's, this is how a split personality is created is trauma. Trauma and then no way to deal with it. And so the psyche actually, this is the theory anyway. But I mean, they've literally done it. I've got um, the book on, it's called the CIA's case of candy brown i think it's called anyway um she her, it's her whole whole account of how she was mk ultra in the 60s as a prostitute for the the politicians and um she had several and the way they found out was her husband was long john neville um, who was kind of the precursor to Art Bell. He was his, um, his muse was this guy, Long John Neville, who would come out. And one of his first things was he started doing these things on uh, stories on mind control because he had figured out how to hypnotize his wife, become a th- he became a hypnotherapist so that he could get these stories out of her and he was sharing them on on the air which is how he got into conspiracy stuff but um yeah dude that's that's how it happens it's trauma and then no way for the ill-equipped mentally and that's where your parents where, where you find out his parents you know essentially weren't there for him and he 
Click you out. know, trauma is an anagram for tar ma. Taurus ma. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. This uh this crazy mm. cipher that I'm looking at is really pointing at the word like the the sounds that we use to mm. make the words Terra and bull. These Terra bull things that happen to people. Uh for uh we have these strange attachments to those sounds, Terra and bull. And I think that they uh are woven into our language in very subtle ways uh, that lead to lend to this trauma trigger uh, button program uh, written before. It's amazing. You know, we are, we are the original computers, you know, <laughs> and it is uh, just little tiny reflections of us uh, that we see in these computers that make them, you know, the modern nemesis of humanity you know, I hate driving around and having the damn computer give instructions. What the hell? It makes, it makes my blood just boil. I feel like my <laughs> life is being depleted by just listening to the sound of that thing's voice. And it is no coincidence that it's a woman's voice. That I'm being made to feel guilty for being angry at <laughs> a woman's voice. That is part of the social construct. They know I'm going to have that response. The other day I was driving and it was like the normal Siri voice on the map. And then it would just switch to the, like every couple of directions, it would go way deeper and lower and scary for just one sentence. And then I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Who took over Alpha for Siri Gore. here? Is yeah. that Alpha Gore? Dude, it was coming through the phone. Hey, why is yeah, Think about Taurus, tore us. Like it, it tore us, you know? Yeah. It's a really weird Taurus, idea. Wow. And maybe this is also part of the original wound of just separating from the mother with birth. Right. Yeah. You know, maybe uh, if it, if the placenta falls off on its own, we shouldn't be calling it Taurus anymore because we're not getting it torn off. Right. You no, know, maybe know. like I've thought that, you know, as magical as all this sky clock symbolism is, how much of it has been tainted with the intention to skew the archetypes to alter the expression of humanity. Yes. You know, Chance, I'm going to send you another visual because it does, it weaves into the conversation very well. I'm seeing this Taurus thing maybe having a lot to do with the Torah. And uh, I just sent Chance a little graphic that I put together of the uh, High Priestess card. Oh, is this it? <laughs> <laughs> Look at her. She's fine. Alpha Jesus. warrior. Is it Man, my Jesus so or my Princess Leia or some weird combination of the two? I don't know. I've got a weird boner right now, man. Really weird. <laughs> oh, make it stop. Make it stop. I'll take it down. Uh. Weird boners. Weird boners are the worst. Guilty boner. Somebody needs a BJ over here, quick. <laughs> so the high priestess card, uh, she has this Torah. She she carries the Torah forward. This was uh, powerfully encoded in the Wizard of Oz uh, with Dorothy and the fact that she carries Toto. Uh, we kind of wove that uh, just recently over with uh, Rising from the Ashes. 
but it's on my radar for sure because of this Belphegor prime and the bull symbolism. So here she is. She's carrying the Torah. She's holding on to the Torah. And uh, turns out these, uh, there is an acronym, a T-O-R acronym that is upheld in the presidential office. Uh, Abraham Lincoln used a system of, ca- of uh, choosing his cabinets members, and it was called Team of Rivals. Team of Rivals is when you pick the least likely uh, uh, associates to work together on a, uh, on a thing. And look at Abraham Lincoln here in the iconic image. He actually has a scroll on his lap, just like the, the high priestess card. He's very much embodying the high priestess with this rolled up paper on his lap in this image of him and his T-O-R, his team of rivals. So this just only kind of, you Only you find this stuff. This is yes, this is This is quite fascinating. And it turns out there is somebody very recently who retired in 2016. 216, the tax code, the six times six times six was the end of Barack Obama who had a team of rivals style cabinet. He set up his cabinet to uphold the TOR. So in the strangest way, Barack Obama is the Empress card holding the Torah, upholding the Torah. And I just thought I would weave that in because we are talking about uh, forms of law, uh, forms of jurisdiction, possibly, uh, yeah, people who are adhering to systems of understanding of the laws of the place that we're in and the ways it works uh, that are yeah, not. I think the tartar of it yes, all. Yes, that is not disclosed to everybody else. There is something very secretive held behind this uh, numerical code and the codes of law, all deeply integrated in a major way. Oh, great digression. Right. And also, I want to point out the fact that the, even the word story is holding, is nested in the word story. Nested in it is the tor of the Torah. Very, very profound to me. Hmm. Toys are us. Boom. Nice one. <laughs> okay, so should I put us back on where we are in the plot <laughs> yeah sorry about that one had to do it no no sorry's man we're here for it that that's the gravy we really want like all this looking at disney stuff is so that we can get into this gravy because it gives us you know whenever you know things but you you can't like put them out of the inside of you unless you see where they're connected to other things so this is just like a big chain of connections that we can follow whenever you look at social engineering mind control mk only works on the inversion of natural principles anyway. So reverse engineering it as we do here yes, actually reveals truth. Right. And I forgot kind of the grand finale of that weave. I'm sorry. I kind of cut myself off, but oh, good. the idea of the governing body of the neural network, the neural center of the system we're in, not agreeing with itself they are role modeling the concept of a, a group of dudes sitting around smoking stogies and patties and circle jerking on the cookie, whatever they do in that office. But they are publicly displayed as not getting along. 
And of course, they don't expect much progress out of a group of guys who don't even get along with each other. Well, they're instilling that mentality into the individual as well. And to a large degree, they want us to think that it or to normalize that arguing with yourself, paralyzing yourself with analysis and second guessing yourself so that you're fighting even within your own mind, because a house divided cannot stand. And that comes from Abraham Lincoln. And nations are depicted that way as squabbling with each other. But behind closed doors, they're they're fucking related. That's right. And also it also so hails back to esoterically on the the inside they all work together but on the outside there's the illusion that they're divided the powers that be i should say but that's to model for us the little people to actually be divided precisely yep and that uh, also i'll just hail it back to that kentucky fool card uh center of fort knox the center of my territory's map in their uh state logo is uh, united we stand, divided we fall. And here we are talking about the great divide, the splitting of the mind and the turning us into a two-headed monster with a false persona attached to us. Yep, and the scales that precede the fall of the sun, the scales where the symbol is that, you know, if you're divided within yourself, then you're going to get et by a crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> so in the plot, we were... At the point where he wakes up and he finds the keys in the cell phone and he starts hearing the voice of his other alter self and uh, talks to his altar in the mirror for the first time. Some more mirror symbolism. And we now know that his other name is Mark. So I thought, let's just look at the name Stephen and Mark. Stephen is from the Greek word meaning wreath or crown. Very interesting, too, because uh, alternate meanings of reward or honor are kind of similar to the symbolic meaning of a goldfish. Meaning good fortune. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So this is, in my opinion, like maybe the goldfish is kind of like a a goat, the goatfish, (laughs) the Capricorn of it all, because we're getting, he's the crown, Stephen, the crown, the crow, the Cronus, Corvus, that whole thing. Now, the other name is Mark. Right. Mark is said to come from Latin, Marcos, consecrated to the god Mars. That makes sense because he's a mercenary. We find out Mark Spector is a mercenary, you know, warrior for hire, definitely consecrated to the god Mars. But the other meaning could also be Mark from Marcus. And Marcus means shining one, biblically. And it's the, it's the, Leo, actually, of the four evangelists. Leo is symbolic of the uh, uh, Apostle Mark. Yes, that's right. One thing about the Stephen meaning fame or renown, that makes me think of public. Uh, And then, and Stephen is the surface level. Is that right? Is the the original? Yeah. Yeah, and Mark is the one deeper, more more in uh inter- more internal in the unconscious and mar is the yeah. sea also and the sea is hugely symbolic of the unconscious it's the you can't right. see through the water so he's the private side right that's his true self the public self is a persona because we, we find out way later that mark is the one is the original he's the real one so to speak 
Spoiler alert. <laughs> Mark's the real one. Yeah. So Stephen is the chaff and Mark is the wheat. Yeah. And Mark is definitely the more capable one. Uh, then we see Khonshu up close for the first time. Kind of chases Steven around and scares him a lot. I don't know if we need to linger on that too much. Um, he's creepy looking. I'll say that. Um, then Steven goes to work. And we're skipping around a lot, but I mean, we can't cover it moment by moment. Give me a break. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Steven goes to work and Harrow, the villain, follows him there. We find out that his whole cult is infiltrated, the security and the the people visiting. And so he's like, you know, Steven's having a paranoid attack. It feels like, but really they're all actually these cultists, part of the hidden hand, some uh, secretly part of this goddess cult. Uh, then he gets, he does the whole balancing tattoo magic death spell on Steven, but it doesn't work on him because the scales won't stop shuffling. Because uh, it said that there's chaos in him, which that's is interesting. Very, that's very interesting because think of the fact that <clears throat> a person can use an insanity plea and justice can't can't affect them. They become absolved or untouchable, too slippery for justice to uh, have jurisdiction because the person doesn't know right from wrong because they don't understand if they don't understand, then the law cannot apply to them. It cannot affix to them because they don't agree to stand under uh, that judgment. So that is very interesting that he cannot be judged and he is having psychological issues. That is a really good point because he's got this true private self. His private self is not his public self that actually protects him from judgment. That's like a, that's amazing weave because mm. that is how, but we're we're showing him being in that state is that's bad. You know, you don't want your private and public self to be separate, but they always were separate. The illusion is that we are identifying with the public persona, the straw man identity. Man, that's good. Yeah. Not long after that, um, I guess it's actually in the second episode. But in the second episode later, when he finally like connects to Mark more clearly, it's after he finds a passport with Mark's identity on it. So his true private self on a passport. So we'll get into that later, but you know, let's remember to definitely when that comes up in, in the next episode we do uh, to talk about, like maybe do some preliminary preparation of research about like, you know, using the passport as your ID rather than driver's license and what the difference between those two things could be. Cause there's definitely a difference as far as I know. I'm sure someone in the chat is like, yeah, huge difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll be real good. Okay. <laughs> well, you just typed in uh, the private chat there, Gordy. That's so good. That's like, uh, that'll be a great slam dunk at the end. Yeah, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I keep I keep trying to jump ahead. Well, we're, we're close to landing this ship, honestly. Um, yeah, <laughs> we're going to just jump straight to this part. He gets chased around the museum by a jackal, Anubis jackal creature. I didn't get a screenshot of that. It was never shown very clearly without blur um, because it's like doing a horror movie thing where you don't fully see it. And yeah, yeah, Alpha Warrior, uh, Mark is private and Steven is public. 
That's right. Steven's the persona. Mark is the private self. I think that's super on point. But at the end here, he summons the suit because he, he has to give up his public persona of being Steven and let his private true self, Mark, take over so that he can fight off this jackal demon. And so he puts on the suit. The suit is, of course, that is symbolic of placenta all day. Gabriel, do you want to get in on this? I don't want to overdo it here. Yeah, for sure. This is where, like, this is where the magic of, you know, enclosed cognition comes into play. And, you know, when we do this next week, I'll, I'll bring some, uh, you know, some things we can read on enclosed cognition and what the, the research, because they, they upped the research just before the, the lockdowns. And so the aspect of using a mask as a spell to put everybody into this trauma-based mind control bullshit is crazy, but it is informed by the research of clothed, enclosed cognition. And so having uh, basically, you know, to sum it up, you know, one of the biggest fundamental lies that is being perpetuated and repeated by all these films that we, in, that we are entertained by, one of the biggest lies is that some kind of costume some kind of uh, ritualistic garment is going to give you abilities or the ability to fly or the right to kill a man, a license to kill, things like that. That doesn't exist, but that is one of the uh, building blocks, the fundamentals of all this entertainment is that there's some magical garment that when you put it on, now you have uh, instant skills and you can circumvent the hero's journey kind of thing. Uh, so that's just a, uh, Definitely what this mommy, mummy, enclosed cognition spell is about to take on as he puts, dons the sacred garment, full armor of God, if you will. And now he has uh, all these magical abilities and his protector, his guardian. He is his own guardian angel now because of that. So the placenta uh, metaphors are just everywhere I look nowadays. And this is about to embody that. And also, another point, it will be that spring. In the scene where he uh, has this battle, the water is uh, springing up uncontrollably from the faucets, and that's the spring equinox that's uh, coming out of Pisces, his birth location with his fish, his goldfish, and moving into Aries, where the battle is beginning. The fighting has begun. Also, he's wearing a hood or a call, which is a placenta symbol. I'm going to put this on screen. This is like movie poster style thing of it. So the top here is the, it's maybe not a full body shot, but this is his costume as Mark where he's actually like where he's powerful. But then when Steven puts on the costume later in the show, he's wearing a suit and tie. And uh, as it was brilliantly pointed out by alpha warrior in the chat, that is the slave costume. So more evidence that he's the public, you know, suit and tie is the slave costume. Mm -hmm monkey suit but this is more of like priestly attire this is a pretty cool poster actually <laughs> it is pretty cool. yeah. I, I just wanted to bring that up because I didn't actually get a screenshot of him in the suit and that is what happens and the other thing is that the fight happens in a in the loo as they call it there but it's a bathroom and in Arabic countries and in the Middle East it's just Eastern countries in general. I think it goes all the way to China. It's thought that gin 
or bad spirits congregate in bathrooms because there's bad smells, bad ventilation. People are passing negative things out of their body. So the first fight that he gets into in a bathroom, you know, that's where the gin is summoned and he, <laughs> it's where he does this weird transformation. There's definitely a lot to that too, because the only reason he has this suit is because he has this possession by the, it's not his placenta that's possessing him. It's the King's placenta. Right. It's Khonshu. It's right. not, it's not his actual original birthday suit, if you will. Right. Okay. Hold on guys. This is a, <laughs> this is huge. Gordy, help me out. Wasn't Ghost Moon Knight? Wasn't the original comics storyline? It was antagonistic to uh, werewolves. Wasn't it werewolves yeah. versus Moon Knight? Yeah, yeah. Werewolf by Night and uh, Moon Knight were kind of like yeah. There, there was a lot of storyline. Yeah, them together. Yeah. Okay, so categorically, we can say that this Moon Knight is Gen Magic. Because of its antagonistic relationship to werewolf uh, uh, magic, it definitely takes the nemesis role of gins versus werewolves. That's that's totally a thing. And so having it birthed in a bathroom, you're right. This is gin magic for sure. That's something to keep in mind. For- Have we gotten to the uh, elevator yet? Is that in the first episode? Yeah, I skipped over it. Okay. If you want to bring it up, I can probably scan to a screenshot of it, but definitely talk about it if you had a thought from that. That's that's okay. It's it was really quick. There's a a flash of a flaming skull in when he's like kind of starting to lose his shit and this is the first time he uh he sees Konshu in his in his bird skull form. Um but there's a a hint at um, Ghost Rider in that is kind of the same thing. You know, he's being possessed by a jinn or higher spiritual being or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, from, that's, from, that's where the old lady gets in the elevator with him, right? For a second? Yeah, yeah she's uh-huh. terrified. Okay, yeah. So I did have a comment on that was the fact that she, uh, you know, she was playing it cool, like everything's okay, even though he's losing his stuff behind her. And she's obviously pretty perturbed by his demeanor. And he's trying to act like he's not freaking out. Well, she gets off the elevator and she says something very interesting as she goes into her, the apartment uh, very eagerly trying to get away from him. She says, my friend is expecting me. And I just found that uh, very interesting. That's kind of like very street savvy for her to say something like that. But I just kind of took it as a strange Christian metaphor for like, once we get to heaven up to this certain level, some people uh, feel like they belong there. They have a place to go. They know they have a routine and they are expected because they've uh, yeah, because they're connected there. And he is, he's gotten to the top and he's floundering and he uh, doesn't feel like he belongs, but I just kind of, there yeah, an- he, he tries to get to he tries to get to the ground from the fifth floor and he gets right. sent back to the fifth floor, the five floor. Right. The and Venus she, of that. And she, Venus, super Venusian, Venusian number, Vitruvian man. Yes. You know, um, mm-hmm. incarnation, the five pattern that nature repeats endlessly. It's like he's stuck in this on this level of existence in the 3D or the five. 
Yeah. But I just found it very Christian of her to say, they're expecting me. Like, I've already paid my dues. I've got a place to go. Don't bother me with this afterlife bullshit. <laughs> That's really true, though, man. Like, you, once you start to figure out some spiritual truths, you find out, like, heaven's just, like, one little thing. Like, it's one dimension of infinite, infinite numbers of dimensions that we can experience. Like, that's that fucking X-Men transmutation, man. You become a mutant, you trans- transmute yourself. And you've, you start to can pick them. You start to be able to see the differences. Once you, and this is what his, uh, this is Steven's journey right now is, is he's starting to lose the illusion because he's seeing the ticks like a lot of us have, have done in the last few years. A lot of people who are watching this are the people that are, you know, just starting to see the ticks in the reality that what we know, what you think you know, you got to forget it all. Wasn't that a line in Doctor Strange? Forget everything you think you know. Yeah, exactly. That's where you start. Commentage time, man. Um, Back into this bathroom scene, too. Jen Brew pointed out the similarity to the way these hieroglyphics. So, okay, these hieroglyphics are not on the walls of this bathroom. But as he's transforming, they're like flashing and strobing onto the wall and then disappearing. So Howdy talks about an experience he had while visiting the physical temple of Kansu in Egypt, Howdy McCoskey, where he sat and stared at the hieroglyphs and statues in a, and in a meditative state, remained there trying to look past the physical or defocalize his gaze from this particular wavelength. Whatever it was he was doing, eventually he began to actually see three-dimensional holographic projections coming off and through of the physical artwork. And it is his contention that this level of communication of logos, or maybe even all forms of logos, but definitely the Egyptian version, had levels of meaning that were only visible to those who were initiated into the ability to see it. As in, you're literally getting the same. We know that this happens with scriptures right now, that you give your average Christian the Bible and they're going to have a very specific, certain dogmatic interpretation of it. And it's just that. That's the only thing it means. Or maybe just a few things. And then you give it to someone who's initiated a few rungs up the ladder and now they've got an eightfold interpretation. They've got astrotheology. They've got law. You know, they've got health, all these metaphors encoded into it. But what if there's another level beyond that where you're looking at the hyper sigils and now you're seeing a movie play out that is a, (laughs) you know, whatever that information is, is on a whole different type of writing than what we think is the end of the line, pun intended. So, yeah, she pointed out that this is kind of a similar thing that these um, holograph hieroglyphs are flashing on the wall as he's initiating himself into wearing his birthday suit. Interesting idea. Yeah, man. 
Some people oh, might so Alpha be. Warrior says, I know of so many people who have had crazy experiences in the pyramids, holographic visions, visitations, past life visions, etc. Yeah, there's something there. Yep, some are more initiated than others. This is basically where it uh, ends this, this episode, though, is with him beating the shit out of the bathroom gin. That's right. Good call. So, yeah, that is that really confirms uh, the gin versus werewolves because he's fighting a dog. He's killing a dog in that scene, too. So, yeah, definitely the gin, which uh, plays very powerfully into the concept of uh, the Quarim that that uh, uh, is it Muslim? Uh, yeah, it's an Arabic idea. Arabic concept of a, a spirit guide. Yeah, but they're like the word refers to a scribe. It's actually a scribe. It's like taking note of everything you do and reporting back to the demiurge. Yes, which is very interesting because that makes me think of how that the high priestess is holding the Torah. She's holding a record. She's keeping a record. Mark. Uh, yeah, right. A narc. Marking it down. Yeah, Mark. It's so interesting. Yeah, and Mark being associated with the jinn makes sense because he's a sh- Marcus means shining one, and the jinn are very relatable to the seraphim, which are the flaming fiery serpents. Yes. So we have the snake versus the dog, or dog, the god versus the snake, whatever you want to call it. I love it. I've got a couple of graphics uh, to kind of kind of support my concluding concluding statements if you guys are ready to get close. Yeah, let's try and land the ship. It's been real. Yeah. <laughs> Remember when we thought we could do three episodes in one night? <laughs> <laughs> it will. It'll get more Some streamlined. people out there could, but not us. We got too much to say. Yeah. It'll streamline real quick after this first one. So we'll yeah, even if it doesn't, then. it's super fun. You guys know that favorite things to do. Okay, so these two graphics, starting with the Carl Jung one. Uh, yeah, either yeah, yeah, either one. What were you saying, Gordy? Oh, they are doing a Werewolf by Night movie. Oh, and very interesting. And that flash of of uh, Ghost Rider. I'm pretty sure they're probably going to do. I think it's Midnight Suns. Is that oh. the uh, kind of dark? Um. Like, you know how just they did a Justice League Dark with like uh, the demon and Constantine and that kind of stuff, like the darker, like more spiritual um, um, DC characters. Well, Marvel did that first with uh, I mean, they always did because of Dr. Strain and Morbius and all that kind of stuff, because the horror horror thing was. You know, it was real that um, Marvel kind of came from the success of of the EC, of dying of the EC, which were the horror horror comics, which were great, man. There were there was nothing, nothing that they wouldn't have tried. Like people were getting decapitated as little kid. It was like that was the bitching shit, man. You if you wanted to find the real stuff, you had to find the easy horror stuff where the lady was decapitating her husband with a with a kitchen knife or something. It was that was fun. But that's why they had a a, a comics code 
the comics code split and made them split like that. And um, that comics code is what killed comics to begin with. And why Marvel was the one that won because they're the ones who stuck the real, the more they were pushing the envelope and didn't care what they said. They were throwing real things in, even though they were getting pushback from, from the comics code they're like, eh, yeah, yeah, we we don't have to listen to that anymore. And they were starting to push the boundaries of uh, storytelling. That's why Marvel is better than DC and will always be. True. Sorry, DC nerds. Superman sucks. <laughs> Super gay. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I love gay people. That's just a joke. They made Superman gay. <laughs> They did. So uh, anyway, sorry. That was my my rant. But they're going to do. Um, I'm pretty sure they're going to do Midnight Suns. That's that's what it looks like. They're they're already in the um, new Doctor Strange. They've already kind of instituted the uh, Illuminati, which is um, Reed Richards um, and Professor X and. I think in this one, they put uh, Captain Marvel, who is the Nova character. Um, and who's the other one? I don't know. That'll be for the next time. We eventually get to Doctor Strange mom. Um, but yeah. Marvel's or, actually putting out a video game of Midnight Suns. Are they really? This year, I think. Oh, okay. Very interesting. That makes me think of the Dark Sun, the Dark Sun symbology that is coming up in the Ukraine. Very timely, very, very timely to be running words like that in headlines. You mean the Kingdom of Ur? Yeah. Wow. Also, yeah. about the Marcus Shining One connection, it was pointed out in the chat that Mark the Evangelist was also a scribe. That is true. Back to the whole scribe Kareem thing, and that uh, Mark was said to have founded Alexandria, which is where like the best library was supposed to be. He's the mythological founder of that. Nice. Uh, well, well, that kind of, that makes sense. Even uh, I think of Mark as a, a just in general, it's a symbol of literacy, you know. To make these marks make sense, you have to be literate. So having Mark correspondent with the center of literacy. Yeah, yeah. So here we go. This is this is wild. So this is kind of uh, we bring this up pretty regularly on our in our work here in the marvelous demystifiers. And if anybody's new to the show, uh. I have a long-standing theory that uh, Carl Jung and his spirit guide, his daemon, uh, Philemon, have a powerful correspondence to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. And there is a lot of reasoning uh, to support this concept. Uh, and this quote right here is one of, uh, one of my favorite reasons, uh, and it really does support the, the theory, because Carl Jung is quoted to have said, I have taken over Faust as my heritage 
and moreover as the advocate and avenger of Philemon. And Bacchus, who, unlike Faust the Superman, are the hosts of the gods in a ruthless and forsaken age. And this is really profound because he puts himself in a oppositional position to the Superman. So that puts Superman Mm -hmm. over there in DC. And it gives him dominion here in the Marvel comic Avengers series. The fact that he titles himself Avenger of Philemon. That is quite profound in their separation from the Superman aspect. But Carl Jung believed he was uh, the descendant of Faust, or the writer, the person who wrote the story of Faust. Uh, And so he is holding on to this lineage of the spirit of this this ancestry of, um, of storytelling. In the spirit of those stories, going all the way from the Bible and informing an entire patronage, you could even think of this as a library being handed down throughout. So, hold up. Are you saying Young claimed to be a descendant of Goethe? Yes. Whoa. And he's in, he is in contact with this guardian angel spirit named Philemon, who he communed with regularly. And that guardian angel, daemon spirit, has been very impactful throughout history before Carl Jung existed. So he has this uh, avatar spirit who he embodies regularly and communes with to inform his worldview. And that is so absolutely profound. And what I'm saying is Carl Jung is a patron saint of secret societies. And there are many, many, many secrets and powerful mysteries hidden inside the wisdom and writing of Carl Jung. But check this out. I have also extracted the vowels, these, uh, these certain letters, out of Marvel Avengers, and they line up perfectly with Carl Gustav Jung's name. <laughs> the spirit of Carl yeah. Gustav Jung is woven into the name, the title. Marvel Avengers. His spirit is literally imbued into the phrase Marvel Avengers, which is a Twilight language whisper of Merovingians. This is Merovingian bloodlines, and I think it goes through Carl Gustav Jung. All right, what do I do with that? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I know, I know, it's so far off. Well, one thing we can talk about is the idea that, okay, on one hand, we're telling people don't succumb to uh, to disassociative identity disorder. Don't succumb to the thought that, you know, you have other personalities and that that's a healthy way to be. You know, uh, being well adjusted to a truly sick society is no mark, no mark of mental health. You know, so on one hand, we're telling people, Amen, do not, yeah, do not succumb to this. Uh, this split parallel dimension maze of lies that is put forward in front of all of us. That is the, the human condition is to survive through that maze of lies and not have any of these gin or attachment or escape identities that will make things easier if we just act crazy like everybody else. But on the other hand, 
There is a case in history, and Carl Jung is that exception, where there has been a high-grade master of, of accomplice uh, psychological prowess and renown. And Carl Jung did engage that, uh, that, gen, that gen. I mean, they call it a genius. They call it a gen, whatever you call it. He did it. And he has written very uh, extensively on the experience and, uh, and was very successful in his lifetime. You know, a lot of people point out that Aleister Crowley died in piss, shit, filth, and addiction. Uh, and that very seldom do these uh, master wizards uh, li- live an exemplary lifestyle. But Carl Jung is an example of a very successful, very accomplished master. But it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work. He had to read so many uh, ancient works in order to even have the context to embody the spirit of Philemon. He had to read so many books to, uh, to consume the information that was the, uh, the fruit that was carrying the spirit of Philemon in every book. And so he read all those books forward and back. And so he was able to come to summon forth the spirit of Philemon because of that. And so Philemon is a spirit that is in many, many novels throughout history that predate Carl Jung. But he uh, synthesized all of that wisdom and knowledge and the spirit of all of that and brought forward the voice of Philemon. And that is really beautiful and profound. Okay, so it sounds like what we're getting into here is that we're presented disassociative identity disorder as a schisming or fracturing of yourself where there's these alters that are just like other regular people, but they're also fucked up. <laughs> but what you're talking, you're talking about the purposeful implantation of an alternate, maybe even artificial intelligence into your psyche, but that you program yourself and that then you are able to communicate an interface with. That's what it sounds like you're saying that Jung had an another identity, but it wasn't disassociative and it wasn't disorderly. Yes. He made an orderly identity to associate with instead of a disassociative identity disorder. It does appear to have been like a highly functional, well integrated relationship. Yes, but I like a servitor in his own psyche that could just come back to him with all the knowledge of the ancient text that he's ever read. That you can't consciously call up. So think about like the idea of a memory palace, palace right. Athena, goddess of wisdom. Maybe that's part of what the ancients were up to is that they were using these constructs that we call gods and goddesses as ways to interface with humanity's collective unconscious knowledge of certain ideas and certain concepts and forces of nature. And that we, cause there's some theories out there that like uh, James, I think, what's his name? Forgetting the name of the author, the origin of the bicameral mind, that whole idea. Campbell? No, it's not Joseph Campbell, but anyway, the the guy who came up with the theory of when or that there was an original state humans were in before the schisming of trauma that led to the creation of what we have as an ego right now. And that his idea was that whenever humans before in the more Edenic state had thoughts or internal monologue or dialogue that they thought that they were just hearing the voice of a God and they knew which one they were hearing. And 
this isn't to say that gods have existence out there as powerful beings that rule us more that it's tapping into forces in that original pattern currents within that Mandelbrot fractal set of the uh, universal ether and how it orders itself in its plasmic state and then further descending states into density. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, one, one uh, quick side note is uh, Nietzsche did the same thing. Nietzsche's writing was bringing forward a, a spirit of thought uh, named uh, Zorathustra. And Nietzsche wrote a book or channeled a book called So Said Zorathustra that had very nihilistic influences on the masses, was very popular in the Nazi trenches. And uh, one could make a case that Zorathustra stirred up a bunch of questions that went unanswered and left them unanswered and very irresponsible might have been irresponsibly may have been implemented in affecting the minds of people that led to war, regardless of who's who it led to war. And uh, Young was very actively trying to find the answers to the questions that Zorathustra left for everybody to fight about. So Young was kind of trying to close off a open wound that Zorathustra left unanswered. And Young came in trying to answer it, and he did so through Philemon. So Zorathustra gets this like nefarious, nihilistic kind of uh, spirit to it. And Philemon is coming in with the answers and uh, mending that wound and bringing closure to uh, some very dangerous questions that went around in those times. So I think that's really beautiful and profound. That is the name of that song. Is also spoke Zarthusra. So oh, spoke Zarthusra. That is the name, the name of that, that song. song. Uh-huh. I did not know that. Good Lord. Thank you for that, Gordy. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's so funny. That's so funny. It's there. It's been there all along. And forever wow. we'll we'll uh, associate that with the uh with the black cube. With the Wow man. From two thousand one. Wow. We believe in nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you gotta watch out for those nihilists at the bowling alley. <laughs> we believe in nothing. <laughs> All so, right, guys, do we have any closing thoughts here? You first, Gordy. Oh. Yeah, uh, dude, this. Uh, we should have known this was going to be this way and just done one at a time anyway. But uh, this is this is fun. I'm more I have more notes for for the second and third ones because when he starts going to um, those, we start meeting the other altars and and seeing their characters and how he um, is split. Also, is a little more interesting. Um, one of the quotes that I wrote. We were talking about the broken psyche. Um, later on, he asks him if he was chosen because he was broken or because he was easy to break. And that's something we should all think about our own selves. 
of our own journey of are we easily broken or are we chosen because we are already broken, but we can put ourselves together again or you weren't fucking broken to begin with. Makes me think of there's this big like Baptist mega church on the way out of town. If you go north head to KC and they have a big neon light up sign, not neon, sorry. It's a LED, right? One of those scrolling signs with messages on it. And it says, are you broken? We are too. Like, come on in. (laughs) I was like, man, that's just the, that's some weak sauce invitation to your cult. <laughs> that is so brutal, yeah, right? That is so hey, you're fucked up. Hey, we are too. Come on down. <laughs> Hang out with some fucked up folks. Get your conscience clean for five minutes until you have to go back out to the world and, and live like a real fucking human being. Yeah, but what you said, Gordy, is interesting. Uh, that's a great quote. Maybe we'll revisit it when we get to that part in the episode, but it's always presenting uh, the, these systems of uh authority are always presenting you like a or b but really they profit regardless of what you pick and so the question of are you were you already broken or were you easier to break what if the you know where's the third answer because i chose it Mm -hmm. which puts the power back on self which is the real truth of the the matter the reason why kansu chose him was because he allowed it he chose kansu That's exactly right. Yeah, but I don't think I have anything else to add other than looking forward to getting back into the sauce with you guys later. Uh, Maybe next week. Maybe we'll just jump right in and see what we can do. And, you know, I would like it if... No, we're talking shop right now, but this applies to the listeners too. If you guys are watching along or want to get the file to watch, hit us up on Telegram uh, if you want to watch it. And be prepared for possibility of doing, I don't know, episodes two and three, because I think we could probably do it. A lot of the foundational ideas are now set up and we, you know, we did the 45 minute opening two minute scene. <laughs> so now we got that out of the way. We should be able to move pretty quickly. I say that, but, you know, maybe we'll get just one episode done in the next part, but maybe two. So be prepared for that possibility. I'm feeling ambitious again. <laughs> and thanks to everybody who stuck out the uh, the whole thing in the chat it's been awesome to see your comments and there's so much more <laughs> oh wow okay one last comment I gotta read from the Rockfin side I'm glad I checked Moonlander says related to nothing or uh, related to nothing and everything everything everywhere all at once the actress of that movie her name is Stephanie Shu. Oh, spelled H S U instead of S H U. That even has the Stephen. Stephanie Stephen Shu. God, damn! Whoa! I think yes. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, that's amazing. Thank you for that comment. Yes, and she was in. She was in Shang Chi for the record. Oh, she gives Shang Chi his birthday suit. Oh my goodness gracious! What? Wild. So at this point, whenever I hear Stephanie and Stephen, I am thinking of you know Caesar's wreath, you know for sure the wreath of Caesar. I'm thinking of the placenta being born on the on the head, much like uh, 
Danny from The Shining, which was called The Shining. Uh, definitely placenta-rific name, Stephen, Stephanie, for sure. That's great. Yeah, the baby comes out crown first. Right, right. Good one, man. Good one. Thanks, brother. Yeah, and also our homie Joshua pointed out the whole uh, being born with your with the placenta covering the baby's face is a sign of a mystic and they call it the call that part of that placenta is the call and it's your higher calling. And these superheroes wear like, what do they call Batman's hat with little bat ears? The call, cow, 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 call, yeah. higher calling. Yeah. Y'all who are part of this knowledge have a higher calling to share it, not just share this content, but share what you see of, truth in the world and not hold it in. I see people off, often when I am doing work with their energy fields who are really damaged internally by feeling and observing, but not expressing. Right. So however and wherever you can. Yeah. These are, these are, these are like a really high grade uh, it's name magic. You know, this is name magic. It's your calling is the, in, in Spanish, como se llama is not just, what do you name? It's how are you commanded? How are you charmed? And that is really profound, the psychological implications of what that really means and how it really affects you when people call you a uh, white nationalist. Are you going to let them dress you up in that? Are they going to let, are you going to let them add a dress to you? to dress you in their words? Are you going to let them address you this way? All of these addressing and your address and the mind control of the government uh, is deeply enrooted in this aspect of enclosed cognition, which is a subject I'll bring a lot more to the table going forward with this, uh, this mummy ritual that we're dealing with. Yeah, and I want to make, maybe not a promise, but it would be cool, something I might bring to future episode of this is a break uh breakdown of the different bodies that the Egyptians believed in different yeah. bodies that incorporated yeah, into one human vessel because yeah. there's a lot like some people we talked about the ka but there's so many more and i was just trying to look and look real quick and reference howdy's book here cuz i can't oh here it is yeah one of the bodies of a of a being is actually their name the name was the Wren. Awesome. So I'm going to read this. The Wren is a person or object's name. While a name is something that distinguishes one person from another, it has a far deeper meaning. The name anything uses will determine the energy that surrounds it. This is a yeah. key reason for the use of naming rituals in ancient societies, for each person will need the correct name, thus the correct energies, to reflect the type of life they wish to lead. The name we use will determine our fate. Ask anyone, especially married women, how th- how different their life has become with a name change. <laughs> he goes on. He definitely goes on. But uh, two more paragraphs here. Very interesting. Uh, maybe we'll bring some of this forward in the future, but I'll read this sentence for sure. In Egypt, the Wren is considered to be one's for a lifetime and is found encircled by a rope of life, a rope of light or life force called a cartouche. This is in the hieroglyphics. So this is associated with the eternity symbol, which is the shin. 
So Egyptians would have two names, Stephen and Mark. They'd have two names in their lifetime. We have gotten lost uh, in the the um, blending of these two parts of ourself, you know, in the collapsing of the towers to make the one tower. The um, We've lost our private self. We've lost the intentional self. And we're stuck with just the one that we were given at birth by the birth sorcery. Uh, I happen to feel like I'm pretty cool with my name, my Ren. <laughs> I think that I got my Ren in a divine fashion. And maybe we all did. So I never felt attracted to a name change. I felt like I lucked, I lucked out with the name chance. <laughs> what are the chances? Cause I feel like that one, that one fits my intention and, and calling and all that. But man, it seems like it would be tricky to get people to start actually calling you a different name. It is. I tried it in elementary school. <laughs> Me too. I tried to go by my middle name in second grade and everyone's same like, no. Thing. Same thing, man. Exactly. The same year. Yeah. All right. What's your middle name? Uh, well, I tried to get everybody to call me Bill because it's William. Uh, it didn't take. People just kept calling me what they wanted to call me, and that was a slick Billy. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it was a harsh lesson. It is. It's really something to like stick on to keep on people. To be my like, middle name is Bradley, and I tried in second grade to go by Brad. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. I didn't though. I'm kind of glad tried. too. But it's an interesting experience to try to enforce your name onto other people. It's it's exhausting, really. It is exhausting, but it requires perpetual uh, effort. Gabriel is a divine name for you, man. <laughs> I grew into it. <laughs> oh, we all do. Gordy, what's your middle name, dude? Travis. I always hated it until now, like just recently. I realize it's the traverser. It's yeah. the, the Your one who goes make you a goth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Total goth, bro. That makes sense. Um, the, the traveler. It also goes with the Gordy being like uh uh going through the in the endeavors. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right, all right. This is it. I feel like this is the point we can jump off the boat. Yeah. Tangents have all been fleshed out. We'll see you guys probably next week. We'll just keep this train going while we're all guys, fresh in mind of it. Really enjoying this uh, vibe. Love you guys a lot. And I'm going to play the the intro music for the outro. We'll, I'll hang around in the chat with you guys for a bit. But been awesome. See you next time. Big vibrant tomorrow night. Going to be a huge weave with uh, Juan from one-on-one and any of our co-conspirate spiders that want to uh, join in, you know, you know, Gabe will be there. He's always there. Mm -hmm. Much love everybody. Hope to see you there. Much love everybody.